Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Elevation and Tyranny of Maximin Rebellion in Africa and Italy Under the Authority of the Senate Civil Wars and Seditions Violent Deaths of Maximin and His Son Of Maximus and Balbinus and of the Three Gordians Usurpation and Secular Games of Philip of the various forms of government which have prevailed in the world, an hereditary monarchy seems to present the fairest scope for ridicule. Is it possible to relate without an indignant smile that on the father's decease the property of a nation, like that of a drove of oxen, descends to his infant son, as yet unknown to mankind and to himself, and that the bravest warriors and the wisest statesmen relinquishing their natural right to empire, approach the royal cradle with bended knees and protestations of inviolable fidelity, satire and declamation may paint these obvious topics in the most dazzling colours, but our most serious thoughts will respect a useful prejudice that establishes a rule of succession independent of the passions of mankind and we shall cheerfully acquiesce in any expedient which deprives the multitude of the dangerous and indeed the ideal power of giving themselves a master in the cool shade of retirement we may easily devise imaginary forms of government in which the sceptre shall be constantly bestowed on the most worthy by the free and incorrupt suffrage of the whole community experience overturns these airy fabrics and teaches us that in a large society the election of a monarch can never devolve to the wisest or to the most numerous part of the people the army is the only order of men sufficiently united to concur in the same sentiments and powerful enough to impose them on the rest of their fellow-citizens but the temper of soldiers habituated at once to violence and to slavery renders them very unfit guardians of a legal or even a civil constitution justice humanity or political wisdom are qualities they are too little acquainted with in themselves to appreciate them in others valour will acquire their esteem and liberality will purchase their suffrage but the first of these merits is often lodged in the most savage breasts the latter can only exert itself at the expense of the public and both may be turned against the possessor of the throne by the ambition of a daring rival the superior prerogative of birth when it has obtained the sanction of time and popular opinion is the plainest and least invidious of all distinctions among mankind the acknowledged right extinguishes the hopes of faction and the conscious security disarms the cruelty of the monarch 
to the firm establishment of this idea we owe the peaceful succession and mild administration of european monarchies to the defect of it we must attribute the frequent civil wars through which an asiatic despot is obliged to cut his way to the throne of his fathers yet even in the east the sphere of contention is usually limited to the princes of the reigning house and as soon as the more fortunate competitor has removed his brethren by the sword and the bowstring he no longer entertains any jealousy of his meaner subjects but the roman empire after the authority of the senate had sunk into contempt was a vast scene of confusion the royal and even noble families of the provinces had long since been led in triumph before the car of the haughty republicans the ancient families of rome had successively fallen beneath the tyranny of the caesars and whilst those princes were shackled by the forms of a commonwealth and disappointed by the repeated failure of their posterity it was impossible that any idea of hereditary succession should have taken root in the minds of their subjects the right to the throne which none could claim from birth everyone assumed from merit the daring hopes of ambition were set loose from the salutary restraints of law and prejudice and the meanest of mankind might without folly entertain a hope of being raised by valour and fortune to a rank in the army in which a single crime would enable him to wrest the sceptre of the world from his feeble and unpopular master after the murder of alexander severus and the elevation of maximin no emperor could think himself safe upon the throne and every barbarian peasant of the frontier might aspire to that august but dangerous station about thirty-two years before that event the emperor severus returning from an eastern expedition halted in thrace to celebrate with military games the birthday of his younger son geta the country flocked in crowds to behold their sovereign and a young barbarian of gigantic stature earnestly solicited in his rude dialect that he might be allowed to contend for the prize of wrestling as the pride of discipline would have been disgraced in the overthrow of a roman soldier by a thracian peasant he was matched with the stoutest followers of the camp sixteen of whom he successively laid on the ground his victory was rewarded by some trifling gifts and a permission to enlist in the troops the next day the happy barbarian was distinguished above a crowd of recruits dancing and exulting after the fashion of his country as soon as he perceived that he had attracted the emperor's notice he instantly ran up to his horse and followed him on foot without the least appearance of fatigue in a long and rapid career thracian said severus with astonishment art thou disposed to wrestle after thy race most willingly sir replied the unwearied youth and almost in a breath overthrew seven of the strongest soldiers in the army a gold collar was the price of his matchless vigour and activity and he was immediately appointed to serve in the horse guards who always attended on the person of the sovereign maximin for that was his name though born on the territories of the empire descended from a mixed race of barbarians his father was a goth and his mother of the nation of the alani he displayed on every occasion a valour equal to his strength and his native fierceness was soon tempered or disguised by the knowledge of the world under the reign of severus and his son he obtained the rank of centurion 
with the favour and esteem of both those princes, the former of whom was an excellent judge of merit. Gratitude forbade Maximin to serve under the assassin of Caracalla. Honour taught him to decline the effeminate insults of Elagabalus. On the accession of Alexander, he returned to court and was placed by the prince in a station useful to the service and honourable to himself. The fourth legion, to which he was appointed tribune, soon became, under his care, the best disciplined of the whole army. With the general applause of the soldiers, who bestowed on their favourite hero the names of Ajax and Hercules, he was successively promoted to the first military command, and had not he still retained too much of his savage origin, the emperor might perhaps have given his own sister and marriage to the son of Maximin. Instead of securing his fidelity, these favours served only to inflame the ambition of the Thracian peasant, who deemed his fortune inadequate to his merit as long as he was constrained to acknowledge a superior. Though a stranger to real wisdom, he was not devoid of a selfish cunning, which showed him that the emperor had lost the affection of the army and taught him to improve their discontent to his own advantage. It is easy for faction and calumny to shed their poison on the administration of the best of princes and to accuse even their virtues by artfully confounding them with those vices to which they bear the nearest affinity. The troops listened with pleasure to the emissaries of Maximin. They blushed at their own ignominious patience, which, during thirteen years, had supported the vexatious discipline imposed by an effeminate Syrian the timid slave of his mother and of the senate. It was time, they cried, to cast away that useless phantom of the civil power and to elect for their prince and general a real soldier educated in camps, exercised in war, who would assert the glory and distribute among his companions the treasures of the empire. A great army was at that time assembled on the banks of the Rhine under the command of the emperor himself who, almost immediately after his return from the Persian War, had been obliged to march against the barbarians of Germany. The important care of training and reviewing the new levies was entrusted to Maximin. One day, as he entered the field of exercise, the troops, either from a sudden impulse or a formed conspiracy, saluted him empire, silenced by their loud acclamations his obstinate refusal and hastened to consummate their rebellion by the murder of Alexander Severus. The circumstances of his death are variously related. The writers, who suppose that he died in ignorance of the ingratitude and ambition of Maximin, affirm that, after taking a frugal repast in the sight of the army, he retired to sleep, and that, about the seventh hour of the day, a part of his own guards broke into the imperial tent and, with many wounds, assassinated their virtuous and unsuspecting prince. If we credit another, and indeed a more probable account, Maximin was invested with the purple by a numerous detachment at the distance of several miles from the headquarters, and he trusted for success rather to the secret wishes than to the public declarations of the army. Alexander had sufficient time to awaken a faint sense of loyalty among the troops, but their reluctant professions of fidelity
quickly vanished on the appearance of maximin who declared himself the friend and advocate of the military order and was unanimously acknowledged emperor of the romans by the applauding legions the son of mamia betrayed and deserted withdrew into his tent desirous at least to conceal his approaching fate from the insults of the multitude he was soon followed by a tribune and some centurions the ministers of death but instead of receiving with manly resolution the inevitable stroke his unavailing cries and entreaties disgraced the last moments of his life and converted into contempt some portion of the just pity which his innocence and misfortunes must inspire his mother mamia whose pride and avarice he loudly accused as the cause of his ruin perished with her son the most faithful of his friends were sacrificed to the first fury of the soldiers others were reserved for the more deliberate cruelty of the usurper and those who experienced the mildest treatment were stripped of their employments and ignominiously driven from the court and army the former tyrants caligula and nero commodus and caracalla were dissolute and unexperienced youths educated in the purple and corrupted by the pride of the empire the luxury of rome and the perfidious voice of flattery the cruelty of maximin was derived from a different source the fear of contempt though he depended on the attachment of the soldiers who loved him for virtues like their own he was conscious that his mean and barbarian origin his savage appearance and his total ignorance of the arts and institutions of civil life formed a very unfavourable contrast with the amiable manners of the unhappy alexander he remembered that in his humbler fortune he had often waited before the door of the haughty nobles of rome and had been denied admittance by the insolence of their slaves he recollected too the friendship of a few who had relieved his poverty and assisted his rising hopes but those who had spurned and those who had protected the thracian were guilty of the same crime the knowledge of his original obscurity for this crime many were put to death and by the execution of several of his benefactors maximin published in characters of blood the indelible history of his baseness and ingratitude the dark and sanguinary soul of the tyrant was open to every suspicion against those among his subjects who were the most distinguished by their birth or merit whenever he was alarmed with the sound of treason his cruelty was unbounded and unrelenting a conspiracy against his life was either discovered or imagined and magnus a consular senator was named as the principal author of it without a witness without a trial and without an opportunity to defence magnus with four thousand of his supposed accomplices was put to death italy and the whole empire were infested with innumerable spies and informers on the slightest accusation the first of the roman nobles who had governed provinces commanded armies and been adorned with the consular and triumphal ornaments were chained on the public carriages and hurried away to the emperor's presence confiscation exile or simple death were esteemed uncommon instances of his lenity some of the unfortunate sufferers he ordered to be sewed up in the hides of slaughtered animals others to be exposed to wild beasts others again to be beaten to death with clubs during the three years of his reign 
he disdained to visit either rome or italy his camp occasionally removed from the banks of the rhine to those of the danube was the seat of his stern despotism which trampled on every principle of law and justice and was supported by the evolved power of the sword no man of noble birth elegant accomplishments or knowledge of civil business was suffered near his person and the court of a roman emperor revived the idea of those ancient chiefs of slaves and gladiators whose savage power had left a deep impression of terror and detestation as long as the cruelty of maximin was confined to the illustrious senators or even to the bold adventurers who in the court of army exposed themselves to the caprice of fortune the body of the people viewed their sufferings with indifference or perhaps with pleasure but the tyrant's avarice stimulated by the insatiate desires of the soldiers at length attacked the public property every city of the empire was possessed of an independent revenue destined to purchase corn for the multitude and to supply the expenses of the games and entertainments by a single act of authority the whole mass of wealth was at once confiscated for the use of the imperial treasury the temples were stripped of their most valuable offerings of gold and silver and the statues of gods heroes and emperors were melted down and coined into money these impious orders could not be executed without tumults and massacres as in many places the people chose rather to die in the defence of their altars than to behold in the midst of peace their cities exposed to the rapine and cruelty of war the soldiers themselves among whom this sacrilegious plunder was distributed received it with a blush and hardened as they were in acts of violence they dreaded the just reproaches of their friends and relations throughout the roman world a general cry of indignation was heard imploring the vengeance on the common enemy of humankind and at length by an act of private oppression a peaceful and unarmed province was driven into rebellion against him the procurator of africa was a servant worthy of such a master who considered the fines and confiscations of the rich as one of the most fruitful branches of the imperial revenue an inquietus sentence had been pronounced against some opulent youths of that country the execution of which would have stripped them of far the greater part of their patrimony in this extremity a resolution that must either complete or prevent their ruin was dictated by despair a respite of three days obtained with difficulty from the rapacious treasurer was employed in collecting from their estates a great number of slaves and peasants blindly devoted to the commands of their lords and armed with the rustic weapons of clubs and axes the leaders of the conspiracy as they were admitted to the audience of the procurator stabbed him with the daggers concealed under their garments and by the assistance of their tumultuary train seized on the little town of thaisdras and erected the standard of rebellion against the sovereign of the roman empire they rested their hopes on the hatred of mankind against maximin and they judiciously resolved to oppose to that detested tyrant an emperor whose mild virtues had already acquired the love and esteem of the romans and whose authority over the province would give weight and stability to the enterprise gordianus their proconsul and the object of their choice refused 
with unfeigned reluctance the dangerous honour and begged with tears that they would suffer him to terminate in peace a long and innocent life without staining his feeble age with civil blood their menaces compelled him to accept the imperial purple his only refuge indeed against the jealous cruelty of maximin since according to the reasoning of tyrants those who have been esteemed worthy of the throne deserve death and those who deliberate have already rebelled the family of gordianus was one of the most illustrious of the roman senate on the father's side he was descended from the gracchi on his mother's from the emperor trajan a great estate enabled him to support the dignity of his birth and in the enjoyment of it he displayed an elegant taste and beneficent disposition the palace in rome formerly inhabited by the great pompey had been during several generations in the possession of gordian's family it was distinguished by ancient trophies of naval victories and decorated with the works of modern painting his villa on the road to prenest was celebrated for baths of singular beauty and extent for three stately rooms of a hundred feet in length and for a magnificent portico supported by two hundred columns of the four most curious and costly sorts of marble the public shows exhibited at his expense and in which the people were entertained with many hundreds of wild beasts and gladiators seemed to surpass the fortune of a subject and while the liberality of other magistrates was confined to a few solemn festivals at rome the magnificence of gordian was repeated when he was aedile every month in the year and extended during his consulship to the principal cities of italy he was twice elevated to the last mentioned dignity by caracalla and by alexander for he possessed the uncommon talent of acquiring the esteem of virtuous princes without alarming the jealousy of tyrants his long life was innocently spent in the study of letters and the peaceful honours of rome and till he was named proconsul of africa by the voice of the senate and the approbation of alexander he appears prudently to have declined the command of armies and the government of provinces as long as that emperor lived africa was happy under the administration of his worthy representative after the barbarous maximin had usurped the throne gordianus alleviated the miseries which he was unable to prevent when he reluctantly accepted the purple he was above fourscore years old a last and valuable remains of the happy age of the antonines whose virtues he revived in his own conduct and celebrated in an elegant poem of thirty books with a venerable proconsul his son who had accompanied him into africa as his lieutenant was likewise declared emperor his manners were less pure but his character was equally amiable with that of his father twenty-two acknowledged concubines and a library of sixty-two thousand volumes attested the variety of his inclinations and from the productions which he left behind him it appears that the former as well as the latter were designed for use rather than for ostentation the roman people acknowledged in the features of the younger gordian the resemblance of skypo africanus recollected with pleasure that his mother was the granddaughter of antoninus pius and rested the public hope on those latin virtues which had hitherto as they fondly imagined lain concealed 
in the luxurious indolence of private life. As soon as the guardians had appeased the first tumult of a popular election, they removed their court to Carthage. They were received with the acclamations of the Africans who had honoured their virtues and who, since the visit of Hadrian, had never beheld the majesty of a Roman emperor. But these vain acclamations neither strengthened nor confirmed the title of the guardians. They were induced by principle as well as interest to solicit the approbation of the senate, and a deputation of the noblest provincials was sent, without delay, to Rome to relate and justify the conduct of their countrymen, who, having long suffered with patience, were at length resolved to act with vigour. The letters of the new princess were modest and respectful, excusing the necessity which had obliged them to accept the imperial title but submitting their election and their fate to the supreme judgment of the Senate. The inclinations of the Senate were neither doubtful nor divided. The birth and noble alliances of the Gordians had intimately connected them with the most illustrious houses of Rome. Their fortune had created many dependents in that assembly, their merit had acquired many friends. Their mild administration opened the flattering prospect of the restoration, not only of the civil, but even of the republican government. The terror of military violence, which had first obliged the senate to forget the murder of Alexander, and to ratify the election of a barbarian peasant, now produced a contrary effect, and provoked them to assert the injured rights of freedom and humanity. The hatred of Maximin towards the Senate was declared and implacable. The tamest submission had not appeased his fury. The most cautious innocence would not remove his suspicions. And even the care of their own safety urged them to share the fortune of an enterprise, of which, if unsuccessful, they were sure to be the first victims. These considerations, and perhaps others of a more private nature, were debated in a previous conference of the consuls and the magistrates. As soon as their resolution was decided, they convoked in the temple of Castor the whole body of the senate, according to an ancient form of secrecy calculated to awaken their attention and to conceal their decrees. Conscript fathers, said the consul Silenus, the two guardians, both of consular dignity, the one your proconsul, the other, your lieutenant, have been declared emperors by the general consent of Africa. Let us return thanks, he boldly continued, to the youth of Thaestrus. Let us return thanks to the faithful people of Carthage, our generous deliverers from a horrid monster. Why do you hear me thus coolly, thus timidly? Why do you cast those anxious looks on each other? Why hesitate? Maximin is a public enemy. May his enmity soon expire with him, and may we long enjoy the prudence and felicity of Gordian the father, the valour and constancy of Gordian the son. The noble ardour of the consul revived the languid spirit of the senate. By a unanimous decree, the election of the Gordians was ratified. Maximin, his son, and his adherents were pronounced enemies of their country, and liberal rewards were offered to whomsoever had the courage and good fortune to destroy them. During the emperor's absence, a detachment of the Praetorian guards remained at Rome to protect 
or rather to command, the capital. The prefect Vitalianus had signalized his fidelity to Maximin by the alacrity with which he had obeyed and even prevented the cruel mandates of the tyrant. His death alone could rescue the authority of the Senate and the lives of the senators from a state of danger and suspense. Before their resolves had transpired, a quester and some tribunes were commissioned to take his devoted life. They executed the order with equal boldness and success, and, with their bloody daggers in their hands, ran through the streets, proclaiming to the people and the soldiers the news of the happy revolution. The enthusiasm of liberty was seconded by the promise of a large donative in lands and money. The statues of Maximin were thrown down, the capital of the empire acknowledged with transport the authority of two guardians in the senate, and the example of Rome was followed by the rest of Italy. A new spirit had arisen in that assembly whose long patience had been insulted by wanton despotism and military license. The senate assumed the reins of government and with a calm intrepidity prepared to vindicate by arms the cause of freedom. Among the consular senators recommended by their merit and their services to the favor of the Emperor Alexander, it was easy to select twenty, not unequal to the command of an army and the conduct of a war. To these was the defense of Italy entrusted. Each was appointed to act in his respective department, authorized to enroll and discipline the Italian youth, and instructed to fortify the ports and highways against the impending invasion of Maximin. A number of deputies, chosen from the most illustrious of the senatorian and equestrian orders, were dispatched at the same time to the governors of the several provinces, earnestly conjuring them to fly to the assistance of their country and to remind the nations of their ancient ties of friendship with the Roman Senate and people. The general respect with which these deputies were received and the zeal of Italy and the provinces in favor of the Senate sufficiently proved that the subjects of Maximin were reduced to that uncommon distress in which the body of the people has more to fear from oppression than from resistance. The consciousness of that melancholy truth inspires a degree of persevering fury seldom to be found in those civil wars which are artificially supported for the benefit of a few factious and designing leaders. For a while, the cause of the Gordians was embraced with such diffusive ardour the Gordians themselves were no more. The feeble court of Carthage was alarmed by the rapid approach of Cape Leanus, governor of Mauritania, who, with a small band of veterans and a fierce host of barbarians, attacked a faithful but unwarlike province. The younger guardian sallied out to meet the enemy at the head of a few guards and a numerous undisciplined multitude educated in the peaceful luxury of Carthage. His useless valor served only to procure him an honorable death on the field of battle. His aged father, whose reign had not exceeded thirty-six days, put an end to his life on the first news of the defeat. Carthage, destitute of defense, opened her gates to the conqueror, and Africa was exposed to the rapacious cruelty of a slave 
obliged to satisfy his unrelenting master with a large account of blood and treasure. The fate of the Gordians filled Rome with just but unexpected terror. The Senate, convoked in the Temple of Concord, affected to transact the common business of the day, and seemed to decline with trembling anxiety the consideration of their own and the public danger. A silent consternation prevailed in the assembly till a senator of the name and family of Trajan awakened his brethren from their fatal lethargy. He represented to them that the choice of cautious dilatory measures had been long since out of their power, that Maximin, implacable by nature and exasperated by injuries, was advancing towards Italy at the head of the military force of the empire, and that their only remaining alternative was either to meet him bravely in the field or tamely to accept the tortures and ignominious death reserved for unsuccessful rebellion. We have lost, continued he, two excellent princes, but unless we desert ourselves, the hopes of the Republic have not perished with the Gordians. Many are the senators whose virtues have deserved and whose abilities would sustain the imperial dignity. Let us elect two emperors, one of whom may conduct the war against the public enemy, while his colleague remains at Rome to direct the civil administration. I cheerfully exposed myself to the danger and envy of the nomination, and give my vote in favour of Maximus and Balbinus. Ratify my choice, conscript fathers, or appoint in their place other more worthy of the empire." The general apprehension silenced the whispers of jealousy. The merit of the candidates was universally acknowledged, and the house resounded with the sincere acclamations of long live and victory to emperors Maximus and Balbinus. You are happy in the judgment of the Senate. May the Republic be happy under your administration. End of chapter 7, part 1 Recorded by Kritika Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, Toronto, Ontario, December 2006. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 7. Tyranny of Maximin, Rebellion, Civil Wars, Death of Maximin, Part 2. The virtues and the reputation of the new emperors justified the most sanguine hopes of the Romans. The various nature of their talents seemed to appropriate to each his peculiar department of peace and war, without leaving room for jealous emulation. Balbinus was an admired orator, a poet of distinguished fame, and a wise magistrate, who had exercised with innocence and applause the civil jurisdiction in almost all the interior provinces of the empire. His birth was noble, his fortune affluent, 
his manners liberal and affable. In him the love of pleasure was corrected by a sense of dignity, nor had the habits of ease deprived him of a capacity for business. The mind of Maximus was formed in a rougher mould. By his valour and abilities he had raised himself from the meanest origin to the first employments of the state and army. His victories over the Sarmatians and the Germans, the austerity of his life, and the rigid impartiality of his justice, while he was a prefect of the city, commanded the esteem of a people whose affections were engaged in favour of the more amiable Balbinus. The two colleagues had both been consuls. Balbinus had twice enjoyed that honourable office. Both had been named among the twenty lieutenants of the Senate, and since the one was sixty, and the other seventy-four years old, they had both attained the full maturity of age and experience. After the Senate had conferred on Maximus and Balbinus an equal portion of the consular and tribunician powers, the title of fathers of their country, and the joint office of supreme pontiff, they ascended to the capital to return thanks to the gods, protectors of Rome. The solemn rites of sacrifice were disturbed by a sedition of the people. The licentious multitude neither loved the rigid Maximus, nor did they sufficiently fear the mild and humane Balbinus. Their increasing numbers surrounded the temple of Jupiter. With obstinate clamours they asserted their inherent right of consenting to the election of their sovereign, and demanded with an apparent moderation that besides the two emperors, chosen by the Senate, a third should be added of the family of the Gordians, as a just return of gratitude to those princes who had sacrificed their lives for the Republic. At the head of the city guards, and the youth of the equestrian order, Maximus and Balbinus attempted to cut their way through the seditious multitude. The multitude armed with sticks and stones drove them back into the capital. It is prudent to yield when the contest, whatever may be the issue of it, must be fatal to both parties. A boy, only thirteen years of age, the grandson of the elder, and nephew of the younger Gordian, was produced to the people, invested with the ornaments and title of Caesar. The tumult was appeased by this easy condescension, and the two emperors, as soon as they had been peaceably acknowledged in Rome, prepared to defend Italy against the common enemy. Whilst in Rome and Africa, revolutions succeeded each other, with such amazing rapidity that the mind of Maximin was agitated by the most furious passions. He is said to have received the news of the rebellion of the Gordians, and of the decree of the Senate against him, not with the temper of a man, but with the rage of a wild beast, which, as it could not discharge itself on the distant Senate, threatened the life of his son, of his friends, and of all who ventured to approach his person. The grateful intelligence of the death of the Gordians was quickly followed by the assurance that the Senate, laying aside all hopes of pardon or accommodation, had substituted in their room two emperors, with whose merit he could not be unacquainted. Revenge was the only consolation left to Maximin, and revenge could only be obtained by arms. The strength of the legions had been assembled by Alexander from all parts of the empire. Three successful campaigns against the Germans and the Sarmatians had raised their fame, confirmed their discipline, 
and even increased their numbers, by filling the ranks with the flower of the barbarian youth. The life of Maximin had been spent in war, and the candid severity of history cannot refuse him the valor of a soldier, or even the abilities of an experienced general. It might naturally be expected that a prince of such a character, instead of suffering the rebellion to gain stability by delay, should immediately have marched from the banks of the Danube to those of the Tiber, and that his victorious army, instigated by contempt for the Senate, and eager to gather the spoils of Italy, should have burned with impatience to finish the easy and lucrative conquest. Yet, as far as we can trust to the obscure chronology of that period, it appears that the operations of some foreign war deferred the Italian expedition till the ensuing spring. From the prudent conduct of Maximin, we may learn that the savage features of his character have been exaggerated by the pencil of party, that his passions, however impetuous, submitted to the force of reason, and that the barbarian possessed something of the generous spirit of Scylla, who subdued the enemies of Rome before he suffered himself to revenge his private injuries. When the troops of Maximin, advancing in excellent order, arrived at the foot of the Julian Alps, they were terrified by the silence and desolation that reigned on the frontiers of Italy. The villages and open towns had been abandoned on their approach by the inhabitants. The cattle was driven away, the provisions removed or destroyed, the bridges broken down, nor was anything left which could afford either shelter or subsistence to an invader. Such had been the wise orders of the generals of the Senate, whose design was to protract the war, to ruin the army of Maximin by the slow operation of famine, and to consume his strength in the sieges of the principal cities of Italy, which they had plentifully stored with men and provisions from the deserted country. Achillea received and withstood the first shock of the invasion. The streams that issued from the head of the Hadriatic Gulf, swelled by the melting of the winter snows, opposed an unexpected obstacle to the arms of Maximin, at length, on a singular bridge, constructed with art and difficulty, of large hogsheads, he transported his army to the opposite bank, rooted up the beautiful vineyards in the neighborhood of Aquileia, demolished the suburbs, and employed the timber of the buildings in the engines and towers, with which on every side he attacked the city. The walls, fallen to decay during the security of a long peace, had been hastily repaired on this sudden emergency but the firmest defence of Aquileia consisted in the constancy of the citizens, all ranks of whom, instead of being dismayed, were animated by the extreme danger, and their knowledge of the tyrant's unrelenting temper. Their courage was supported and directed by Crispinus and Menophilus, two of the twenty lieutenants of the Senate, who, with a small body of regular troops, had thrown themselves into the besieged place. The army of Maximin was repulsed in repeated attacks, his machines destroyed by showers of artificial fire, and the generous enthusiasm of the Achilleans was exalted into a confidence of success by the opinion that Bellinus, their tutelar deity, combated in person in the defense of his distressed worshippers. The Emperor Maximus, who had advanced as far as Ravenna to secure that important place, and to hasten the military preparations, beheld the event of the war in the more faithful mirror 
of reason and policy. He was too sensible that a single town could not resist the persevering efforts of a great army, and he dreaded, lest the enemy, tired with the obstinate resistance of Achillea, should on a sudden relinquish the fruitless siege and march directly towards Rome. The fate of the empire and the cause of freedom must then be committed to the chance of a battle. And what arms could he oppose to the veteran legions of the Rhine and Danube? Some troops newly levied among the generous but enervated youth of Italy, and a body of German auxiliaries, on whose firmness, in the hour of trial, it was dangerous to depend. In the midst of these just alarms, the stroke of domestic conspiracy punished the crimes of Maximin, and delivered Rome and the Senate from the calamities that would surely have attended the victory of an enraged barbarian. The people of Aquileia had scarcely experienced any of the common miseries of a siege. Their magazines were plentifully supplied, and several fountains within the walls assured them of an inexhaustible resource of fresh water. The soldiers of Maximin were, on the contrary, exposed to the inclemency of the season, the contagion of disease, and the horrors of famine. The open country was ruined, the rivers filled with the slain, and polluted with blood. A spirit of despair and disaffection began to diffuse itself among the troops, and as they were cut off from all intelligence, they easily believed that the whole empire had embraced the cause of the Senate, and that they were left as devoted victims to perish under the impregnable walls of Aquileia. The fierce temper of the tyrant was exasperated by disappointments, which he imputed to the cowardice of his army, and his wanton and ill-timed cruelty, instead of striking terror, inspired hatred, and a just desire of revenge. A party of Praetorian guards, who trembled for their wives and children in the camp of Alba, near Rome, executed the sentence of the Senate. Maximin, abandoned by his guards, was slain at his tent with his son, whom he had associated to the honours of the purple, Anulinus, the prefect, and the principal ministers of his tyranny. The sight of their heads, borne on the point of spears, convinced the citizens of Aquileia that the siege was at an end. The gates of the city were thrown open, a liberal market was provided for the hungry troops of Maximin, and the whole army joined in solemn protestations of fidelity to the Senate and the people of Rome, and to their lawful emperors, Maximus and Balbinus. Such was the deserved fate of a brutal savage, destitute, as he has generally been represented, of every sentiment that distinguishes a civilized, or even a human being. The body was suited to the soul. The stature of Maximin exceeded the measure of eight feet. The circumstances, almost incredible, are related of his matchless strength and appetite. Had he lived in a less enlightened age, tradition and poetry might well have described him as one of those monstrous giants whose supernatural power was constantly exerted for the destruction of mankind. It is easier to conceive than to describe the universal joy of the Roman world on the fall of the tyrant, the news of which is said to have been carried in four days from Aquileia to Rome. The return of Maximus was a triumphal procession. His colleague and young Gordian went out to meet him, and the three princes made their entry into the capital, attended by the ambassadors of almost all the cities of Italy, 
saluted with the splendid offerings of gratitude and superstition, and received with the unfeigned acclamations of the senate and people, who persuaded themselves that a golden age would succeed to an age of iron. The conduct of the two emperors corresponded with these expectations. They administered justice in person, and the rigor of the one was tempered by the other's clemency. The oppressive taxes with which Maximin had loaded the rights of inheritance and succession were repealed, or at least moderated. Discipline was revived, and with the advice of the Senate many wise laws were enacted by their imperial ministers, who endeavored to restore a civil constitution on the ruins of military tyranny. What reward may we expect for delivering Rome from a monster, was the question asked by Maximus in a moment of freedom and confidence. Balbinus answered it without hesitation, the love of the Senate, of the people, and of all mankind. "'Alas!' replied his more penetrating colleague, "'alas! I dread the hatred of the soldiers, and the fatal effects of their resentment. His apprehensions were but too well justified by the event.' Whilst Maximus was preparing to defend Italy against the common foe, Balbinus, who remained at Rome, had been engaged in scenes of blood and intestine discord. Distrust and jealousy reigned in the Senate, and even in the temples where they assembled, every senator carried either open or concealed arms. In the midst of their deliberations, two veterans of the guards, actuated either by curiosity or a sinister motive, audaciously thrust themselves into the house, and advanced by degrees beyond the altar of victory. Gallicanus, a consular, and Messenus, a praetorian senator, viewed with indignation their insolent intrusion. Drawing their daggers, they laid the spies, for such they deemed them, dead at the foot of the altar, and then, advancing to the door of the senate, imprudently exhorted the multitude to massacre the praetorians, as the secret adherents of the tyrant. Those who escaped the first fury of the tumult took refuge in the camp, which they defended with superior advantage against the reiterated attacks of the people, assisted by the numerous bands of gladiators, the property of opulent nobles. The civil war lasted many days, with infinite loss and confusion on both sides. When the pipes were broken that supplied the camp with water, the Praetorians were reduced to intolerable distress, but in their turn they made desperate sallies into the city, set fire to a great number of houses, and filled the streets with the blood of the inhabitants. The Emperor Balbinus attempted, by ineffectual edicts and precarious truces, to reconcile the factions at Rome, but their animosity, though smothered for a while, burnt with redoubled violence. The soldiers, detesting the Senate and the people, despised the weakness of a prince, who wanted either the spirit or the power to command the obedience of his subjects. After the tyrant's death, his formidable army had acknowledged, from necessity rather than from choice, the authority of Maximus, who transported himself without delay to the camp before Aquileia. As soon as he had received their oath of fidelity, he addressed them in terms full of mildness and moderation, lamented rather than arraigned the wild disorders of the time, and assured the soldiers that of all their past conduct the Senate would remember only their generous desertion of the tyrant, and their voluntary return to their duty. 
Maximus enforced his exhortations by a liberal donative, purified the camp by a solemn sacrifice of expiation, and then dismissed the legions to their several provinces, impressed, as he hoped, with a lively sense of gratitude and obedience. But nothing could reconcile the haughty spirit of the Praetorians. They attended the emperors on the memorable day of their public entry into Rome, but amidst the general acclamations, the sullen, dejected countenance of the guards sufficiently declared that they considered themselves as the object, rather than the partners, of the triumph. When the whole body was united in their camp, those who had served under Maximin, and those who had remained at Rome, insensibly communicated to each other their complaints and apprehensions. The emperors chosen by the army had perished with ignominy. Those elected by the Senate were seated on the throne. The long discord between the civil and military powers was decided by a war, in which the former had obtained a complete victory. The soldiers must now learn a new doctrine of submission to the Senate, and whatever clemency was effected by that politic assembly, they dreaded a slow revenge, colored by the name of discipline, and justified by fair pretenses of the public good. But their fate was still in their own hands, and if they had courage to despise the vain terrors of an impotent republic, it was easy to convince the world that those who were masters of the arms were masters of the authority of the state. When the Senate elected two princes, it is probable that, besides the declared reason of providing for the various emergencies of peace and war, they were actuated by the secret desire of weakening by division the despotism of the supreme magistrate. Their policy was effectual, but it proved fatal, both to their emperors and to themselves. The jealousy of power was soon exasperated by the difference of character. Maximus despised Balbinus as a luxurious noble, and was in his turn disdained by his colleague as an obscure soldier. Their silent discord was understood, rather than seen, but the mutual consciousness prevented them from uniting in any vigorous measures of defence against their common enemies of the Praetorian camp. The whole city was employed in the Capitoline games, and the emperors were left almost alone in the palace. On a sudden they were alarmed by the approach of a troop of desperate assassins. Ignorant of each other's situation or designs, for they already occupied very distant apartments, afraid to give or to receive assistance, they wasted the important moments in idle debates and fruitless recriminations. The arrival of the guards put an end to the vain strife. They seized on these emperors of the Senate, for such they called them with malicious contempt, stripped them of their garments, and dragged them in insolent triumph through the streets of Rome, with the design of inflicting a slow and cruel death on these unfortunate princes. The fear of a rescue from the faithful Germans of the imperial guards shortened their tortures, and their bodies, mangled with a thousand wounds, were left exposed to the insults or to the pity of the populace. In the space of a few months six princes had been cut off by the sword. Gordian, who had already received the title of Caesar, was the only person that occurred to the soldiers as proper to fill the vacant throne. They carried him to the camp, and unanimously saluted him Augustus and Emperor. His name was dear to the Senate and people, his tender age promised a long impunity of military license, and the submission of Rome and the provinces to the choice of the Praetorian guards saved the Republic 
at the expense indeed of its freedom and dignity, from the horrors of a new civil war in the heart of the capital. As the third Gordian was only nineteen years of age at the time of his death, the history of his life, were it known to us with greater accuracy than it really is, would contain little more than the account of his education, and the conduct of the ministers, who by turns abused or guided the simplicity of his unexperienced youth. Immediately after his accession he fell into the hands of his mother's eunuchs, that pernicious vermin of the East, who, since the days of Elagabalus, had infested the Roman palace. By the artful conspiracy of these wretches, an impenetrable veil was drawn between an innocent prince and his oppressed subjects. The virtuous disposition of Gordian was deceived, and the honors of the empire sold without his knowledge, though in a very public manner, to the most worthless of mankind. We are ignorant by what fortunate accident the emperor escaped from this ignominious slavery, and devolved his confidence on a minister, whose wise counsels had no object except the glory of his sovereign and the happiness of the people. It should seem that love and learning introduced Mesethius to the favor of Gordian. The young prince married the daughter of his master of rhetoric, and promoted his father-in-law to the first offices of the empire. Two admirable letters that passed between them are still extant. The minister, with the conscious dignity of virtue, congratulates Gordian that he is delivered from the tyranny of the eunuchs, and still more that he is sensible of his deliverance. The emperor acknowledges, with an amiable confusion, the errors of his past conduct, and laments with singular propriety the misfortune of a monarch, from whom a venal tribe of courtiers perpetually labor to conceal the truth. The life of Mesethius had been spent in the profession of letters, not of arms. Yet such was the versatile genius of that great man, that, when he was appointed Praetorian Prefect, he discharged the military duties of his place with vigor and ability. The Persians had invaded Mesopotamia, and threatened Antioch. By the persuasion of his father-in-law, the young emperor quitted the luxury of Rome, opened for the last time recorded in history the temple of Janus, and marched in person into the east. On his approach, with a great army, the Persians withdrew their garrisons from the cities which they had already taken, and retired from the Euphrates to the Tigris. Gordian enjoyed the pleasure of announcing to the Senate the first success of his arms, which he ascribed, with a becoming modesty and gratitude, to the wisdom of his father and prefect. During the whole expedition, Mesethius watched over the safety and discipline of the army, whilst he prevented their dangerous murmurs by maintaining a regular plenty in the camp, and by establishing ample magazines of vinegar, bacon, straw, barley, and wheat in all the cities of the frontier. But the prosperity of Gordian expired with Mesethius, who died of a flux, not without very strong suspicions of poison. Philip, his successor in the prefecture, was an Arab by birth, and consequently, in the earlier part of his life, a robber by profession. His rise from so obscure a station to the first dignities of the empire seems to prove that he was a bold and able leader. But his boldness prompted him to aspire to the throne, and his abilities were employed to supplant, not to serve, his indulgent master. The minds of the soldiers were irritated by an artificial scarcity, created by his contrivance in the camp, 
and the distress of the army was attributed to the youth and incapacity of the prince. It is not in our power to trace the successive steps of the secret conspiracy and open sedition which were at length fatal to Gordian. A sepulchral monument was erected to his memory on the spot where he was killed, near the conflux of the Euphrates, with the little river Aboras. The fortunate Philip, raised to the empire by the votes of the soldiers, found a ready obedience from the senate and the provinces. We cannot forbear transcribing the ingenious, though somewhat fanciful description, which a celebrated writer of our own times has traced of the military government of the Roman Empire. What in that age was called the Roman Empire was only an irregular republic, not unlike the aristocracy of Algiers, where the militia, possessed of the sovereignty, creates and deposes a magistrate, who is styled a day. Perhaps, indeed, it may be laid down as a general rule that a military government is, in some respects, more republican than monarchical. Nor can it be said that the soldiers only partook of the government by their disobedience and rebellions. The speeches made to them by the emperors, were they not at length of the same nature as those formerly pronounced to the people by the consuls and the tribunes? And although the armies had no regular place or forms of assembly, though their debates were short, their action sudden, and their resolves seldom the result of cool reflection, did they not dispose, with absolute sway, of the public fortune? What was the emperor, except the minister of a violent government, elected for the private benefit of the soldiers? When the army had elected Philip, who was Praetorian prefect to the third Gordian, the latter demanded that he might remain sole emperor. He was unable to obtain it. He requested that the power might be equally divided between them. The army would not listen to his speech. He consented to be degraded to the rank of Caesar. The favor was refused him. He desired, at least, he might be appointed Praetorian prefect. His prayer was rejected. Finally, he pleaded for his life. The army, in these several judgments, exercised the supreme magistracy. According to the historian, whose doubtful narrative the President de Montesquieu has adopted, Philip, who, during the whole transaction, had preserved a sullen silence, was inclined to spare the innocent life of his benefactor, till, recollecting that his innocence might excite a dangerous compassion in the Roman world, he commanded, without regard to his suppliant cries, that he should be seized, stripped, and led away to instant death. After a moment's pause, the inhuman sentence was executed. End of chapter 7, part 2of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, Toronto, Ontario, December 2006. THE DECLINE AND FALL OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE VOLUME One, BY EDWARD GIBBON CHAPTER Seven: TYRANNY OF MAXIMIN, REBELLION, CIVIL WARS, DEATH OF MAXIMIN PART Three. On his return from the east to Rome, Philip, 
desirous of obliterating the memory of his crimes, and of captivating the affections of the people, solemnized the secular games with infinite pomp and magnificence. Since their institution, or revival by Augustus, they had been celebrated by Claudius, by Domitian, and by Severus, and were now renewed the fifth time, on the accomplishment of the full period of a thousand years from the foundation of Rome. Every circumstance of the secular games was skilfully adapted to inspire the superstitious mind with deep and solemn reverence. The long interval between them exceeded the term of human life, and as none of the spectators had already seen them, none could flatter themselves with the expectation of beholding them a second time. The mystic sacrifices were performed, during three nights, on the banks of the Tiber, and the campus Martius resounded with music and dances, and was illuminated with innumerable lamps and torches. Slaves and strangers were excluded from any participation in these national ceremonies. A chorus of twenty-seven youths, and as many virgins, of noble families, and whose parents were both alive, implored the propitious gods in favor of the present, and for the hope of the rising generation, requesting in religious hymns, that according to the faith of their ancient oracles, they would still maintain the virtue, the felicity, and the empire of the Roman people. The magnificence of Philip's shows and entertainments dazzled the eyes of the multitude. The devout were employed in the rites of superstition, whilst the reflecting few revolved in their anxious minds the past history and the future fate of the empire. Since Romulus, with a small band of shepherds and outlaws, fortified himself in the hills near the Tiber, ten centuries had already elapsed. During the first four ages, the Romans and the laborious school of poverty had acquired the virtues of war and government. By the vigorous exertion of those virtues, and by the assistance of fortune, they had obtained, in the course of the three succeeding centuries, an absolute empire over many countries of Europe, Asia, and Africa. The last three hundred years had been consumed in apparent prosperity and internal decline. The nation of soldiers, magistrates, and legislators, who composed the thirty-five tribes of the Roman people, were dissolved into the common mass of mankind, and confounded with the millions of servile provincials who had received the name, without adopting the spirit of Romans. A mercenary army, levied among the subjects and barbarians of the frontier, was the only order of men who preserved and abused their independence. By their tumultuary election, a Syrian, a Goth, or an Arab, was exalted to the throne of Rome, and invested with despotic power over the conquests and over the country of the Scipios. The limits of the Roman Empire still extended from the western ocean to the Tigris, and from Mount Atlas to the Rhine and the Danube. To the undiscerning eye of the vulgar, Philip appeared a monarch no less powerful than Hadrian or Augustus had formerly been. The form was still the same, but the animating health and vigor were fled. The industry of the people was discouraged and exhausted by a long series of oppression. The discipline of the legions, which alone, after the extinction of every other virtue, had propped the greatness of the state, was corrupted by the ambition, or relaxed by the weakness, of the emperors. The strength of the frontiers, which had always consisted in arms rather than in fortifications, was insensibly undermined, and the fairest provinces were left exposed to the rapaciousness 
or ambition of the barbarians, who soon discovered the decline of the Roman Empire. End of chapter 7, part 3「Chapter Eight, Part One of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Julian Jameson. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Volume One, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Eight, State of Persian and Restoration of the Monarchy, Part One, of the State of Persia after the Restoration of the Monarchy by Artaxerxes. Whenever Tacitus indulges himself in those beautiful episodes in which he relates some domestic transaction of the Germans or of the Parthians. His principal object is to relieve the attention of the reader from a uniform scene of vice and misery. From the reign of Augustus to the time of Alexander Severus, the enemies of Rome were in her bosom, the tyrants and the soldiers, and her prosperity had a very distant and feeble interest in the revolutions that might happen beyond the Rhine and the Euphrates. But when the military order had leveled, in wild anarchy, the power of the prince, the laws of the Senate, and even the discipline of the camp, the barbarians of the north and of the east, who had long hovered on the frontier, boldly attacked the provinces of a declining monarchy. Their vexatious inroads were changed into formidable eruptions, and after a long vicissitude of mutual calamities, many tribes of the victorious invaders established themselves in the provinces of the Roman Empire. To obtain a clearer knowledge of these great events, we shall endeavor to form a previous idea of the character, forces, and designs of those nations who avenged the cause of Hannibal and Mithridates. In the more early ages of the world, whilst the forest that covered Europe afforded a retreat to a few wandering savages, the inhabitants of Asia were already collected into populous cities and reduced under extensive empires, the seat of the arts, of luxury, and of despotism. The Assyrians reigned over the east, till the scepter of Ninus and Semiramis dropped from the hands of their enervated successors. The Medes and the Babylonians divided their power, and were themselves swallowed up in the monarchy of the Persians, whose arms could not be confined within the narrow limits of Asia followed, it is said, by two millions of men, Xerxes, the descendant of Cyrus, invaded Greece. Thirty thousand soldiers, under the command of Alexander, the son of Philip, who was entrusted by the Greeks with their glory and revenge, were sufficient to subdue Persia. The princes of the house of Seleucus usurped and lost the Macedonian command over the east. About the same time, that by an ignominious treaty, they resigned to the Romans the country on this side of Mount Taras, they were driven by the Parthians, an obscure horde of Scythian origin, from all the provinces of Upper Asia. The formidable power of the Parthians, which spread from India to the frontiers of Syria, was in its turn subverted by Ardshir, or Artaxerxes, the founder of a new dynasty, which, under the name of Sassanides, 
governed Persia till the invasion of the Arabs. This great revolution, whose fatal influence was soon experienced by the Romans, happened in the fourth year of Alexander Severus, two hundred and twenty-six years after the Christian era. Artaxerxes had served with great reputation in the armies of Artaban, the last king of the Parthians, and it appears that he was driven into exile and rebellion by royal ingratitude, the customary reward for superior merit. His birth was obscure, and the obscurity equally gave room to the aspersions of his enemies and the flattery of his adherents. If we credit the scandal of the former, Artaxerxes sprang from the illegitimate commerce of a tanner's wife with a common soldier. The latter represent him as descended from a branch of the ancient kings of Persian, though time and misfortune had gradually reduced his ancestors to the humble station of private citizens. As the lineal heir of the monarchy, he asserted his right to the throne, and challenged the noble task of delivering the Persians from the oppression under which they groaned above five centuries since the death of Darius. The Parthians were defeated in three great battles. In the last of these their king Artaban was slain, and the spirit of the nation was forever broken. The authority of Artaxerxes was solemnly acknowledged in a great assembly held at Balkh in Khorasan. Two younger branches of the royal house of Arsaces were confounded among the prostrate satraps. A third, more mindful of ancient grandeur than of present necessity, attempted to retire, with a numerous train of vessels, towards their kinsman, the king of Armenia. But this little army of deserters was intercepted and cut off, by the vigilance of the conqueror, who boldly assumed the double diadem, and the title of king of kings, which had been enjoyed by his predecessor. But these pompous titles, instead of gratifying the vanity of the Persian, served only to admonish him of his duty, and to inflame in his soul, and should the ambition of restoring in their full splendor the religion and empire of Cyrus. During the long servitude of Persia under the Macedonian and the Parthian yoke, the nations of Europe and Asia had mutually adopted and corrupted each other's superstitions. The Arsacides, indeed, practiced the worship of the Magi, but they disgraced and polluted it with a various mixture of foreign idolatry. The memory of Zoroaster, the ancient prophet and philosopher of the Persians, was still revered in the East, but the obsolete and mysterious language in which the Zandavesta was composed opened a field of dispute to seventy sects, who variously explained the fundamental doctrines of their religion, and were all indifferently derided by a crowd of infidels, who rejected the divine mission and miracles of the prophet. To suppress the idolaters, reunite the schismatics, and confute the unbelievers, by the infallible decision of a general council, the pious Artaxerxes summoned the magi from all parts of his dominions. These priests, who had so long sighed in contempt and obscurity, obeyed the welcome summons, and on the appointed day appeared to the number of about eighty thousand. But as the debates of so tumultuous an assembly could not have been directed by the authority of reason, were influenced by the art of policy, the Persian synod was reduced by successive operations to forty thousand, to four thousand, to four hundred, to forty, and at last to seven magi, the most respected for their learning and piety. One of these, Erdaviraf, a young but holy prelate, received from the hands of his brethren three cups of soporiferous wine. He drank them off, and instantly fell into a long and profound sleep. As soon as he waked, he related to the king and to the believing multitude his journey to heaven, and his intimate conferences with the deity. 
every doubt was silenced by this supernatural evidence, and the articles of the faith of Zoroaster were affixed with equal authority and precision. A short delineation of that celebrated system will be found useful, not only to display the character of the Persian nation, but to illustrate many of their most important transactions, both in peace and war, with the Roman Empire. The great and fundamental article of the system was the celebrated doctrine of the two principles, a bold and injudicious attempt of Eastern philosophy to reconcile the existence of moral and physical evil with the attributes of a beneficent creator and governor of the world. The first and original being, in whom or by whom the universe exists, is denominated in the writings of Zoroaster, time without bounds. But it must be confessed that this infinite substance seems rather a metaphysical abstraction of the mind than a real object endowed with self-consciousness, or possessed of moral perfections. From either the blind or the intelligent operation of this infinite time, which bears but too near an affinity with the chaos of the Greeks, the two secondary but active principles of the universe were from all eternity produced, Ormust and Ariman, each of them possessed of the powers of creation, but each disposed, by his invariable nature, to exercise them with different designs. The principle of good is eternally absorbed in light, the principle of evil eternally buried in darkness. The wise benevolence of Ormust formed man capable of virtue, and abundantly provided his fair habitation with the materials of happiness. By his vigilant providence, the motion of the planets, the order of the seasons, and the temperate mixture of the elements, are preserved. But the malice of Ahriman has long since pierced Ormust's egg, or, in other words, has violated the harmony of his works. Since that fatal eruption, the most minute articles of good and evil are intimately intermingled and agitated together. The rankest poisons spring up amidst the most salutary plants. Deluges, earthquakes, and conflagrations attest the conflict of nature, and the little world of man is perpetually shaken by vice and misfortune. Whilst the rest of humankind are led away captives in the chains of their infernal enemy, the faithful Persian alone reserves his religious adoration for his friend and protector Ormuzd, and fights under his banner of light, in the full confidence that he shall in the last day share the glory of his triumph. At that decisive period, the enlightened wisdom of goodness will render the power of Ormuzd superior to the furious malice of his rival. Ahriman and his followers, disarmed and subdued, will sink into their native darkness, and virtue will maintain the eternal peace and harmony of the universe. End of chapter 8, part 1「Part two. The theology of Zoroaster was darkly comprehended by foreigners, and even by the far greater number of his disciples. But the most careless observers were struck with the philosophic simplicity of the Persian worship. 
That people, said Herodotus, rejects the use of temples, of altars, and of statues, and smiles at the folly of those nations who imagine that the gods are sprung from, or bear any affinity with, the human nature. The tops of the highest mountains are the places chosen for sacrifices. Hymns and prayers are the principal worship. The supreme god, who fills the wide circle of heaven, is the object to whom they are addressed. Yet, at the same time, in the true spirit of a polytheist, he accuseth them of adoring earth, water, fire, the winds, and the sun and moon. But the Persians of every age have denied the charge, and explained the equivocal conduct which might appear to give a color to it. The elements, and more particularly fire, light, and the sun, whom they called Mithra, were the objects of their religious reverence because they considered them as the purest symbols, the noblest productions, and the most powerful agents of the divine power and nature. Every mode of religion, to make a deep and lasting impression on the human mind, must exercise our obedience by enjoining practices of devotion for which we can assign no reason, and must acquire our esteem by inculcating moral duties analogous to the dictates of our own hearts. The religion of Zoroaster was abundantly provided with the former, and possessed a sufficient portion of the latter. At the age of puberty, the faithful Persian was invested with a mysterious girdle, the badge of the divine protection, and from that moment all the actions of his life, even the most indifferent, or the most necessary, were sanctified by their peculiar prayers, ejaculations, or genuflections, the omission of which, under any circumstances, was a grievous sin, not inferior in guilt to the violation of the moral duties. The moral duties, however, of justice, mercy, liberality, etc., were in their turn required of the disciples of Zoroaster, who wished to escape the persecution of Ahriman, and to live with Ormuzd in a blissful eternity, where the degree of felicity will be exactly proportioned to the degree of virtue and piety. But there are some remarkable instances in which Zoroaster lays aside the prophet, assumes the legislator, and discovers a liberal concern for private and public happiness, seldom to be found among the groveling or visionary schemes of superstition. Fasting and celibacy, the common means of purchasing the divine favor, he condemns with abhorrence, as a criminal rejection of the best gifts of providence. The saint, in the Magian religion, is obliged to beget children, to plant useful trees, to destroy noxious animals, to convey water to the dry lands of Persia, and to work out his salvation by pursuing all the labors of agriculture. We may quote from the Zendavesta, a wise and benevolent maxim, which compensates for many an absurdity. He who sows the ground with care and diligence acquires a greater stock of religious merit than he could gain by the repetition of ten thousand prayers. In the spring of every year a festival was celebrated, destined to represent the primitive equality and the present connection of mankind. The stately kings of Persia, exchanging their vain pomp for more genuine greatness, freely mingled with the humblest but most useful of their subjects. On that day the husbandmen were admitted, without distinction, to the table of the king and his satraps. The monarch accepted their petitions, inquired into their grievances, and conversed with them on the most equal terms. From your labors, was he accustomed to say, 
and to say with truth, if not with sincerity, from your labors we receive our subsistence, you derive your tranquillity from our vigilance. Since therefore we are mutually necessary to each other, let us live together like brothers, in concord and love. Such a festival must indeed have degenerated, in a wealthy and despotic empire, into a theatrical representation. But it was at least a comedy well worthy of a royal audience, and which might sometimes imprint a salutary lesson on the mind of a young prince. Had Zoroaster, in all his institutions, invariably supported this exalted character, his name would deserve a place with those of Numa and Confucius, and his system would be justly entitled to all the applause which it has pleased some of our divines, and even some of our philosophers, to bestow on it. But in that motley composition, dictated by reason and passion, by enthusiasm and by selfish motives, some useful and sublime truths were disgraced by a mixture of the most abject and dangerous superstition. The magi, or sacerdotal order, were extremely numerous, since, as we have already seen, fourscore thousand of them were convened in a general council. Their forces were multiplied by discipline. A regular hierarchy was diffused through all the provinces of Persia, and the Archimagus, who resided at Balkh, was respected as the visible head of the church and the lawful successor of Zoroaster. The property of the Magi was very considerable. Besides the less invidious possession of a large tract of the most fertile lands of Medea, they levied a general tax on the fortunes and the industry of the Persians. Though your good works, says the interested prophet, exceed in number the leaves of the trees, the drops of rain, the stars in the heaven, or the sands on the seashore. They will all be unprofitable to you unless they are accepted by the destor, or priest. To obtain the acceptation of this guide to salvation, you must faithfully pay him tithes of all you possess, of your goods, of your lands, and of your money. If the destor be satisfied, your soul will escape hell tortures. You will secure praise in this world and happiness in the next. For the destors are the teachers of religion. They know all things, and they deliver all men. These convenient maxims of reverence and implicit were doubtless imprinted with care on the tender minds of youth since the Magi were the masters of education in Persia, and to their hands the children even of the royal family were entrusted. The Persian priests, who were of a speculative genius, preserved and investigated the secrets of Oriental philosophy, and acquired, either by superior knowledge or superior art, the reputation of being well-versed in some occult sciences, which have derived their appellation from the Magi. Those of more active dispositions mixed with the world in courts and cities, and it is observed that the administration of Artaxerxes was in a great measure directed by the councils of the sacerdotal order, whose dignity, either from policy or devotion, that prince restored to its ancient splendor. The first council of the Magi was agreeable to the unsociable genius of their faith, to the practice of ancient kings, and even to the example of their legislator who had a victim to a religious war, excited by his own intolerant zeal. By an edict of Artaxerxes, the exercise of every worship 
except that of Zoroaster, was severely prohibited. The temples of the Parthians, and the statues of their deified monarchs, were thrown down with ignominy. The sword of Aristotle, such was the name given by the Orientals, to the polytheism and philosophy of the Greeks, was easily broken. The flames of persecution soon reached the more stubborn Jews and Christians, nor did they spare the heretics of their own nation and religion. The majesty of Ormust, who was jealous of a rival, was seconded by the despotism of Artaxerxes, who could not suffer a rebel, and the schismatics within his vast empire were soon reduced to the inconsiderable number of eighty thousand. This spirit of persecution reflects dishonor on the religion of Zoroaster, but as it was not productive of any civil commotion, it served to strengthen the new monarchy by uniting all the various inhabitants of Persia in the bands of religious zeal. Artaxerxes, by his valor and conduct, had wrested the scepter of the east from the ancient royal family of Parthia. There still remained the more difficult task of establishing, throughout the vast extent of Persia, a uniform and vigorous administration. The weak indulgence of the Arsacides had resigned to their sons and brothers the principal provinces, and the greatest offices of the kingdom in the nature of hereditary possessions. The Vitax, or eighteen most powerful satraps, were permitted to assume the regal title, and the vain pride of the monarch was delighted with a nominal dominion over so many vassal kings. Even tribes of barbarians in their mountains, and the Greek cities of Upper Asia within their walls, scarcely acknowledged or seldom obeyed any superior, and the Parthian Empire exhibited under other names a lively image of the feudal system which has since prevailed in Europe. But the active victor, at the head of a numerous and disciplined army, visited in person every province of Persia. The defeat of the boldest rebels, and the reduction of the strongest fortifications, diffused the terror of his arms, and prepared the way for the peaceful reception of his authority. An obstinate resistance was fatal to the chiefs, but their followers were treated with lenity. A cheerful submission was rewarded with honors and riches. But the prudent Artaxerxes, suffering no person except himself to assume the title of king, abolished every intermediate power between the throne and the people. His kingdom, nearly equal in extent to modern Persia, was on every side bounded by the sea, or by great rivers, by the Euphrates, the Tigris, the Araxes, the Oxus, and the Indus, by the Caspian Sea and the Gulf of Persia. That country was computed to contain, in the last century, five hundred and fifty-four cities, sixty thousand villages, and about forty millions of souls. If we compare the administration of the house of Sasan with that of the house of Sephi, the political influence of the Magian with that of the Mahometan religion, we shall probably infer that the kingdom of Artaxerxes contained at least as great a number of cities, villages, and inhabitants. But it must likewise be confessed that in every age the want of harbors on the sea-coast, and the scarcity of fresh water in the inland provinces, have been very unfavorable to the commerce and agriculture of the Persians, who, in the calculation of their numbers, seem to have indulged one of the nearest, though most common, artifices of national vanity. As soon as the ambitious mind of Artaxerxes had triumphed over the resistance of his vassals, he began to threaten the neighboring states, who, during the long slumber of his predecessors, had insulted Persia with impunity. 
he obtained some easy victories over the wild Scythians and the effeminate Indians, but the Romans were an enemy who, by their past injuries and present power, deserved the utmost efforts of his arms. A forty years' tranquillity, the fruit of valor and moderation, had succeeded the victories of Trajan. During the period that elapsed from the accession of Marcus to the reign of Alexander, the Roman and the Parthian empires were twice engaged in war, and although the whole strength of the Arsacides contended with a part only of the forces of Rome, the event was most commonly in favor of the latter. Macrinus, indeed, prompted by his precarious situation and pusillanimous temper, purchased a peace at the expense of near two millions of our money. But the generals of Marcus, the emperor Severus, and his son, erected many trophies in Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria. Among their exploits, the imperfect relation of which would have unseasonably interrupted the more important series of domestic revolutions, we shall only mention the repeated calamities of the two great cities of Seleucia and Ctesiphon. Seleucia, on the western bank of the Tigris, about forty-five miles to the north of ancient Babylon, was the capital of the Macedonian conquests in Upper Asia. Many ages after the fall of their empire, Seleucia retained the genuine characters of a Grecian colony, arts, military virtue, and the love of freedom. The independent republic was governed by a senate of three hundred nobles. The people consisted of six hundred thousand citizens. The walls were strong, and as long as concord prevailed among the several orders of the state, they viewed with contempt the power of the Parthian. But the madness of faction was sometimes provoked to implore the dangerous aid of the common enemy, who was posted almost at the gates of the colony. The Parthian monarchs, like the Mughal sovereigns of Hindustan, delighted in the pastoral life of their Scythian ancestors, and the imperial camp was frequently pitched in the plain of Ctesiphon, on the eastern bank of the Tigris, at the distance of only three miles from Seleucia. The innumerable attendants on luxury and despotism resorted to the court, and the little village of Ctesiphon insensibly swelled into a great city. Under the reign of Marcus, the Roman generals penetrated as far as Ctesiphon and Seleucia. They were received as friends by the Greek colony. They attacked as enemies the seat of the Parthian kings. Yet both cities experienced the same treatment. The sack and conflagration of Seleucia, with the massacre of three hundred thousand of the inhabitants, tarnished the glory of the Roman triumph. Seleucia, already exhausted by the neighborhood of a too powerful rival, sunk under the fatal blow. But Ctesiphon, in about thirty-three years, had sufficiently recovered its strength to maintain an obstinate siege against the emperor Severus. The city was, however, taken by assault. The king, who defended it in person, escaped with precipitation. A hundred thousand captives, and a rich booty, rewarded the fatigues of the Roman soldiers. Notwithstanding these misfortunes, Ctesiphon succeeded to Babylon and to Seleucia, as one of the great capitals of the east. In summer, the monarch of Persia enjoyed at Ecbatana the cool breezes of the mountains of Medea, but the mildness of the climate engaged him to prefer Ctesiphon for his winter residence. From these successful inroads, the Romans derived no real or lasting benefit, nor did they attempt to preserve such distant conquests, separated from the provinces of the empire by a large tract of intermediate desert. The reduction of the kingdom of Osrone was an acquisition of less splendor indeed, but of a far more solid advantage. That little state occupied the northern and most fertile part of Mesopotamia, 
between the Euphrates and the Tigris. Edessa, its capital, was situated about twenty miles beyond the former of those rivers, and the inhabitants, since the time of Alexander, were a mixed race of Greeks, Arabs, Syrians, and Armenians. The feeble sovereigns of Osrone, placed on the dangerous verge of two contending empires, were attached from inclination to the Parthian cause, but the superior power of Rome exacted from them a reluctant homage, which is still attested by their medals. After the conclusion of the Parthian war under Marcus, it was judged prudent to secure some substantia, pledges of their doubtful fidelity. Forts were constructed in several parts of the country, and a Roman garrison was fixed in the strong town of Nisibis. During the troubles that followed the death of Commodus, the princes of Osrone attempted to shake off the yoke, but the stern policy of Severus confirmed their dependence, and the perfidy of Caracalla completed the easy conquest. Abgarus, the last king of Edessa, was sent in chains to Rome, his dominions reduced into a province, and his capital dignified with the rank of colony. And thus the Romans, about ten years before the fall of the Parthian monarchy, obtained a firm and permanent establishment beyond the Euphrates. Prudence, as well as glory, might have justified a war on the side of Artaxerxes, had his views been confined to the defence or acquisition of a useful frontier. But the ambitious Persian openly avowed a far more extensive design of conquest, and he thought himself able to support his lofty pretensions by the arms of reason as well as by those of power. Cyrus, he alleged, had first subdued, and his successors had for a long time possessed, the whole extent of Asia, as far as the Propontis and the Aegean Sea. The provinces of Caria and Ionia, under their empire, had been governed by Persian satraps, and all Egypt, to the confines of Ethiopia, had acknowledged their sovereignty. Their rights had been suspended, but not destroyed, by a long usurpation, and as soon as he received the Persian diadem, which birth and successful valour had placed upon his head, the first great duty of his station called upon him to restore the ancient limits and splendour of the monarchy. The great king, therefore, such was the haughty style of his embassies to the emperor Alexander, commanded the Romans instantly to depart from all the provinces of his ancestors, and, yielding to the Persians the empire of Asia, to content themselves with the undisturbed possession of Europe. This haughty mandate was delivered by four hundred of the tallest and most beautiful of the Persians, who, by their fine horses, splendid arms, and rich apparel, displayed the pride and greatness of their master. Such an embassy was much less an offer of negotiation than a declaration of war. Both Alexander Severus and Artaxerxes, collecting the military force of the Roman and Persian monarchies, resolved in this important contest to lead their armies in person. If we credit what should seem the most authentic of all records, an oration, still extant, and delivered by the emperor himself to the senate, we must allow that the victory of Alexander Severus was not inferior to any of those formerly obtained over the Persians by the son of Philip. The army of the great king consisted of one hundred and twenty thousand horse, clothed in complete armor of steel, of seven hundred elephants, with towers filled with archers on their backs, and of eighteen hundred chariots armed with scythes. This formidable host, the like of which is not to be found in Eastern history, and has scarcely been imagined in Eastern romance, 
was discomfited in a great battle in which the roman alexander proved himself an intrepid soldier and a skilful general the great king fled before his valor an immense booty and the conquest of mesopotamia were the immediate fruits of this signal victory such are the circumstances of this ostentatious and improbable relation dictated as it too plainly appears by the vanity of the monarch adorned by the unblushing servility of his flatterers and received without contradiction by a distant and obsequious senate far from being inclined to believe that the arms of alexander obtained any memorable advantage over the persians we are induced to suspect that all this blaze of imaginary glory was designed to conceal some real disgrace our suspicions are confirmed by the authority of a contemporary historian who mentions the virtues of alexander with respect and his faults with candor he describes the judicious plan which had been formed for the conduct of the war three roman armies were destined to invade persia at the same time and by different roads but the operations of the campaign though wisely concerted were not executed either with ability or success the first of these armies as soon as it had entered the marshy plains of babylon towards the artificial conflux of the euphrates and the tigris was encompassed by the superior numbers and destroyed by the arrows of the enemy the alliance of Khosros, king of armenia and the long tract of mountainous country in which the persian cavalry was of little service opened a secure entrance into the heart of media to the second of the roman armies these brave troops laid waste the adjacent provinces and by several successful actions against artaxerxes gave a faint color to the emperor's vanity but the retreat of this victorious army was imprudent or at least unfortunate in repassing the mountains great numbers of soldiers perished by the badness of the roads and the severity of the winter season it had been resolved that whilst these two great detachments penetrated into the opposite extremes of the persian dominions the main body under the command of alexander himself should support their attack by invading the centre of the kingdom but the unexperienced youth influenced by his mother's counsels and perhaps by his own fears deserted the bravest troops and the fairest prospect of victory and after consuming in mesopotamia an inactive and inglorious summer he led back to antioch an army diminished by sickness and provoked by disappointment the behavior of artaxerxes had been different flying with rapidity from the hills of medea to the marshes of the euphrates he had everywhere opposed the invaders in person and in either fortune had united with the ablest conduct the most undaunted resolution but in several obstinate engagements against the veteran legions of rome the persian monarch had lost the flower of his troops even his victories had weakened his power the favorable opportunities of the absence of alexander and of the confusions that followed that emperor's death presented themselves in vain to his ambition instead of expelling the romans as he pretended from the continent of asia he found himself unable to wrest from their hands the little province of mesopotamia the reign of artaxerxes which from the last defeat of the parthians lasted only fourteen years forms a memorable era in the history of the east and even in that of rome his character seems to have been marked by those bold and commanding features that generally distinguish the princes who conquer from those who inherit an empire till the last period of the persian monarchy his code of laws was respected as the groundwork of their civil and religious policy several of his sayings are preserved 
one of them in particular discovers a deep insight into the constitution of government. The authority of the prince, said Dr. Xerxes, must be defended by a military force. That force can only be maintained by taxes. All taxes must, at last, fall upon agriculture, and agriculture can never flourish except under the protection of justice and moderation. Artaxerxes bequeathed his new empire and his ambitious designs against the Romans to Sapor, a son not unworthy of his great father, but those designs were too extensive for the power of Persia, and served only to involve both nations in a long series of destructive wars and reciprocal calamities. The Persians, long since civilized and corrupted, were very far from possessing the martial independence and the intrepid hardiness both of mind and body, which have rendered the northern barbarians masters of the world. The science of war, that constituted the more rational force of Greece and Rome, as it now does of Europe, never made any considerable progress in the East. Those disciplined evolutions which harmonize and animate a confused multitude were unknown to the Persians. They were equally unskilled in the arts of constructing, besieging, or defending regular fortifications. They trusted more to their numbers than to their courage, more to their courage than to their discipline. The infantry was a half-armed, spiritless crowd of peasants, levied in haste by the allurements of plunder, and as easily dispersed by a victory as by a defeat. The monarch and his nobles transported into the camp the pride and luxury of the seraglio, their military operations were impeded by a useless train of women, eunuchs, horses, and camels, and in the midst of a successful campaign the Persian host was often separated or destroyed by an unexpected famine. But the nobles of Persia, in the bosom of luxury and despotism, preserved a strong sense of personal gallantry and national honor. From the age of seven years they were taught to speak truth, to shoot with the bow, and to ride, and it was universally confessed that in the two last of these arts they had made a more than common proficiency. The most distinguished youth were educated under the monarch's eye, practiced their exercises in the gate of his palace, and were severely trained up to the habits of temperance and obedience in their long and laborious parties of hunting. In every province the satrap maintained a like school of military virtue. The Persian nobles, so natural is the idea of feudal tenures, received from the king's bounty lands and houses, on the condition of their service in war. They were ready on the first summons to mount on horseback, with a martial and splendid train of followers, and to join the numerous bodies of guards who were carefully selected from among the most robust slaves, and the bravest adventurers of Asia. These armies, both of light and of heavy cavalry, equally formidable by the impetuosity of their charge and the rapidity of their motions, threatened, as an impeding cloud, the eastern provinces of the declining empire of Rome. End of chapter 8, part 2「Chapter 9 Parts 1 and 2 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Volume 1, Chapter 9 State of Germany until the Barbarians. Part 1 The State of Germany till the Invasion of the Barbarians in the Time of the Emperor Decius. The government and religion of Persia have deserved some notice from their connection with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. We shall occasionally mention the Scythian or Sarmatian tribes, which with their arms and horses, their flocks and herds, their wives and families, wandered over the immense plains which spread themselves from the Caspian Sea to the Vistula, from the confines of Persia to those of Germany. But the warlike Germans, who first resisted, then invaded, and at length overturned the western monarchy of Rome, will occupy a much more important place in this history, and possess a stronger, and if we may use the expression, a more domestic claim to our attention and regard. The most civilized nations of modern Europe issued from the woods of Germany, and in the rude institutions of those barbarians we may still distinguish the original principles of our present laws and manners. In their primitive state of simplicity and independence, the Germans were surveyed by the discerning eye, and delineated by the masterly pencil of Tacitus, the first of historians who applied the science of philosophy to the study of facts. The expressive conciseness of his descriptions has served to exercise the diligence of innumerable antiquarians, and to excite the genius and penetration of the philosophic historians of our own times. The subject, however various and important, has already been so frequently so ably and so successfully discussed, that it is now grown familiar to the reader, and difficult to the writer. We shall therefore content ourselves with observing, and indeed with repeating, some of the most important circumstances of climate, of manners, and of institutions, which rendered the wild barbarians of Germany such formidable enemies to the Roman power. Ancient Germany, excluding from its independent limits the province westward of the Rhine, which had submitted to the Roman yoke, extended itself over a third part of Europe. Almost the whole of modern Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Livonia, Prussia, and the greater part of Poland were peopled by the various tribes of one great nation, whose complexion, manners, and language denoted a common origin, and preserved a striking resemblance. On the west, ancient Germany was divided by the Rhine from the Gallic, and on the south by the Danube, from the Illyrian provinces of the empire. A ridge of hills rising from the Danube, and called the Carpathian Mountains, covered Germany on the side of Dacia, or Hungary. The eastern frontier was faintly marked by the mutual fears of the Germans and the Sarmatians, and was often confounded by the mixture of warring and confederating tribes of the two nations. In the remote darkness of the north, the ancients imperfectly descried a frozen ocean, that lay beyond the Baltic Sea, and beyond the peninsula or islands of Scandinavia. Some ingenious writers have suspected that Europe was much colder formerly than it is at present, and the most ancient descriptions of the climate of Germany tend exceedingly to confirm their theory. The general complaints of intense frost and eternal winter are perhaps little to be regarded, since we have no method of reducing to the accurate standard of the thermometer the feelings, or the expressions, of an orator born in the happier regions of Greece or Asia. But I shall select two remarkable circumstances of a less equivocal nature. 1. The great rivers which covered the Roman provinces, the Rhine and the Danube, were frequently frozen over, and capable of supporting the most enormous weights. 
the barbarians who often chose that severe season for their inroads transported without apprehension or danger their numerous armies their cavalry and their heavy wagons over a vast and solid bridge of ice modern ages have not presented an instance of a like phenomenon two the reindeer that useful animal from whom the savage of the north derives the best comforts of his dreary life is of a constitution that supports and even requires the most intense cold he is found on the rock of spitzberg within ten degrees of the pole he seems to delight in the snows of lapland and siberia but at present he cannot subsist much less multiply in any country to the south of the baltic in the time of caesar the reindeer as well as the elk and the wild bull was a native of the hercynian forest which then overshadowed a great part of germany and poland the modern improvements sufficiently explain the causes of the diminution of the cold these immense woods have been gradually cleared which intercepted from the earth the rays of the sun the morasses have been drained and in proportion as the soil has been cultivated the air has become more temperate canada at this day is an exact picture of ancient germany although situated in the same parallel with the finest provinces of france and england that country experiences the most rigorous cold the reindeer are very numerous the ground is covered with deep and lasting snow and the great river of st lawrence is regularly frozen in a season when the waters of the seine and the thames are usually free from ice it is difficult to ascertain and easy to exaggerate the influence of the climate of ancient germany over the minds and bodies of the natives many writers have supposed and most have allowed though as it should seem without any adequate proof that the rigorous cold of the north was favorable to long life and generative vigor that the women were more fruitful and the human species more prolific than in warmer or more temperate climates we may assert with greater confidence that the keen air of germany formed the large and masculine limbs of the natives who were in general of a more lofty stature than the people of the south gave them a kind of strength better adapted to violent exertions than to patient labor and inspired them with constitutional bravery which is the result of nerves and spirits the severity of a winter campaign that chilled the courage of the roman troops was scarcely felt by these hardy children of the north who in their turn were unable to resist the summer heats and dissolved away in languor and sickness under the beams of an italian sun chapter nine part two there is not anywhere upon the globe a large tract of country which we have discovered destitute of inhabitants or whose first population can be fixed with any degree of historical certainty and yet as the most philosophic minds can seldom refrain from investigating the infancy of great nations our curiosity consumes itself in toilsome and disappointed efforts when tacitus considered the purity of the german blood and the forbidding aspect of the country he was disposed to pronounce those barbarians indigent or natives of the soil we may allow with safety and perhaps with truth that ancient germany was not originally peopled by any foreign colonies already formed into a political society but that the name and nation received their existence from the gradual union of some wandering savages of the hercynian woods to assert those savages to have been the spontaneous production of the earth which they inhabited would be a rash inference condemned by religion and unwarranted by reason 
such rational doubt is but ill-suited with the genius of popular vanity among the nations who have adopted the mosaic history of the world the ark of noah has been of the same use as was formerly to the greeks and romans the siege of troy on a narrow basis of acknowledged truth an immense but rude superstructure of fable has been erected and the wild irishman as well as the wild tartar could point out the individual son of japhet from whose loins his ancestors were lineally descended the last century abounded with antiquarians of profound learning and easy faith who by the dim light of legends and traditions of conjectures and etymologies conducted the great-grandchildren of noah from the tower of babel to the extremities of the globe of these judicious critics one of the most entertaining was oas rudbeck professor in the university of Uppsala. whatever is celebrated either in history or fable this zealous patriot ascribes to his country from sweden which forms so considerable a part of ancient germany the greeks themselves derived their alphabetical characters their astronomy and their religion of that delightful region for such it appeared to the eyes of a native the atlantis of plato the country of the hyperboreans the garden of the hesperides the fortunate islands and even the elysian fields were all but faint and imperfect transcripts a clime so profusely favored by nature could not long remain desert after the flood the learned rudbeck allows the family of noah a few years to multiply from eight to about twenty thousand persons he then disperses them into small colonies to replenish the earth and to propagate the human species the german or swedish detachment which marched if i am not mistaken under the command of askenaz the son of gomer the son of japhet distinguished itself by a more than common diligence in the prosecution of this great work the northern hive cast its swarms over the greatest part of europe africa and asia and to use the author's metaphor the blood circulated from the extremities to the heart but all this well-labored system of german antiquities is annihilated by a single fact too well attested to admit of any doubt and of too decisive a nature to leave room for any reply the germans in the age of tacitus were unacquainted with the use of letters and the use of letters is the principal circumstance that distinguishes a civilized people from a herd of savages incapable of knowledge or reflection without that artificial help the human memory soon dissipates or corrupts the ideas entrusted to her charge and the nobler faculties of the mind no longer supplied with models or with materials gradually forget their powers the judgment becomes feeble and lethargic the imagination languid or irregular fully to apprehend this important truth let us attempt in an improved society to calculate the immense distance between the man of learning and the illiterate peasant the former by reading and reflection multiplies his own experience and lives in distant ages and remote countries whilst the latter rooted to a single spot and confined to a few years of existence surpasses but very little his fellow labourer the ox in the exercise of his mental faculties the same and even a greater difference will be found between nations than between individuals and we may safely pronounce that without some species of writing no people has ever preserved the faithful annals of their history ever made any considerable progress in the abstract sciences or ever possessed in any tolerable degree of perfection the useful and agreeable arts of life of these arts the ancient germans were wretchedly destitute they passed their lives in a state of ignorance and poverty 
which it has pleased some declaimers to dignify with the appellation of virtuous simplicity. Modern Germany is said to contain about 2,300 walled towns. In a much wider extent of country, the geographer Ptolemy could discover no more than ninety places which he decorates with the name of cities, though, according to our ideas, they would but ill-deserve that splendid title. We can only suppose them to have been rude fortifications, constructed in the centre of the woods, and designed to secure the women, children, and cattle, whilst the warriors of the tribe marched out to repel a sudden invasion. But Tacitus asserts, as a well-known fact, that the Germans in his time had no cities, and that they affected to despise the works of Roman industry, as places of confinement rather than of security. Their edifices were not even contiguous, or formed into regular villas. Each barbarian fixed his independent dwelling on the spot to which a plain, a wood, or a stream of fresh water had induced him to give the preference. Neither stone, nor brick, nor tiles were employed in these slight habitations. They were, indeed, no more than low huts of a circular figure, built of rough timber, thatched with straw, and pierced at the top to leave a free passage for the smoke. In the most inclement weather the hardy German was satisfied with a scanty garment made of the skin of some animal. The nations who dwelt towards the north clothed themselves in furs, and the women manufactured for their own use a coarse kind of linen. The game of various sorts, with which the forests of Germany were plentifully stocked, supplied its inhabitants with food and exercise. Their monstrous herds of cattle, less remarkable indeed for their beauty than for their utility, formed the principal object of their wealth. A small quantity of corn was the only produce exacted from the earth. The use of orchards or artificial meadows was unknown to the Germans, nor can we expect any improvements in agriculture from a people whose prosperity every year experienced a general change by a new division of the arable lands, and who, in that strange operation, avoided disputes by suffering a great part of their territory to lie waste and without tillage. Gold, silver, and iron were extremely scarce in Germany. Its barbarous inhabitants wanted both skill and patience to investigate those rich veins of silver which have so liberally rewarded the attention of the princes of Brunswick and Saxony. Sweden, which now supplies Europe with iron, was equally ignorant of its own riches, and the appearance of the arms of the Germans furnished a sufficient proof how little iron they were able to bestow on what they must have deemed the noblest use of that metal. The various transactions of peace and war had introduced some Roman coins, chiefly silver, among the borderers of the Rhine and Danube, but the more distant tribes were absolutely unacquainted with the use of money, carried on their confined traffic by the exchange of commodities, and prized their rude earthen vessels as of equal value with the silver vases, the presence of Rome to their princes and ambassadors. To a mind capable of reflection, such leading facts convey more instruction than a tedious detail of subordinate circumstances. The value of money has been settled by general consent to express our wants and our property, as letters were invented to express our ideas. And both these institutions, by giving a more active energy to the powers and passions of human nature, have contributed to multiply the objects they were designed to represent. The use of gold and silver is in a great measure factitious, but it would be impossible to enumerate the important and various services which agriculture and all the arts have received from iron, when tempered and fashioned by the operation of fire, 
and the dexterous hand of man. Money, in a word, is the most universal incitement, iron the most powerful instrument of human industry, and it is very difficult to conceive by what means a people, neither actuated by the one nor seconded by the other, could emerge from the grossest barbarism. If we contemplate a savage nation in any part of the globe, a supine indolence and a carelessness of futurity will be found to constitute their general character. In a civilized state, every faculty of man is expanded and exercised, and the great chain of mutual dependence connects and embraces the several members of society. The most numerous portion of it is employed in constant and useful labor. The select few, placed by fortune above that necessity, can, however, fill up their time by the pursuits of interest or glory, by the improvement of their estate or of their understanding, by the duties, the pleasures, and even the follies of social life. The Germans were not possessed of these varied resources. The care of the house and family, the management of the land and cattle, were delegated to the old and the infirm, to women and slaves. The lazy warrior, destitute of every art that might employ his leisure hours, consumed his days and nights in the animal gratifications of sleep and food. And yet, by a wonderful diversity of nature, according to the remark of a writer who had pierced into its darkest recesses, the same barbarians are by turns the most indolent and the most restless of mankind. They delight in sloth, they detest tranquillity. The languid soul, oppressed with its own weight, anxiously required some new and powerful sensation, and war and danger were the only amusements adequate to its fierce temper. The sound that summoned the German to arms was grateful to his ear. It roused him from his uncomfortable lethargy, gave him an active pursuit, and by strong exercise of the body and violent emotions of the mind, restored him to a more lively sense of his existence. In the dull intervals of peace, these barbarians were immoderately addicted to deep gaming and excessive drinking, both of which, by different means, the one by inflaming their passions, the other by extinguishing their reason, alike relieved them from the pain of thinking. They gloried in passing whole days and nights at table, and the blood of friends and relations often stained their numerous and drunken assemblies. Their debts of honor, for in that light they have transmitted to us those of play, they discharged with the most romantic fidelity. The desperate gamester, who had staked his person and liberty on a last throw of the dice, patiently submitted to the decision of fortune, and suffered himself to be bound, chastised, and sold into remote slavery by his weaker but more lucky antagonist. Strong beer, a liquor extracted with very little art from wheat or barley, and corrupted, as it is strongly expressed by Tacitus, into a certain semblance of wine, was sufficient for the gross purposes of German debauchery. But those who had tasted the rich wines of Italy, and afterwards of Gaul, sighed for that more delicious species of intoxication. They attempted not, however, as has since been executed with so much success, to naturalize the vine on the banks of the Rhine and Danube, nor did they endeavor to procure by industry the materials of an advantageous commerce. To solicit by labor what might be ravished by arms was esteemed unworthy of the German spirit. The intemperate thirst of strong liquors often urged the barbarians to invade the provinces on which art or nature had bestowed those more envied presents. The Tuscan who betrayed his country to the Celtic nations attracted them into Italy by the prospect of the rich fruits and delicious wines. 
the productions of a happier climate and in the same manner the german auxiliaries invited into france during the civil wars of the sixteenth century were allured by the promise of plenteous quarters in the provinces of champagne and burgundy drunkenness the most illiberal but not the most dangerous of our vices was sometimes capable in a less civilized state of mankind of occasioning a battle a war or a revolution the climate of ancient germany has been modified and the soil fertilized by the labor of ten centuries from the time of charlemagne the same extent of ground which at present maintains in ease and plenty a million of husbandmen and artificers was unable to supply a hundred thousand lazy warriors with the simple necessities of life the germans abandoned their immense forests to the exercise of hunting employed in pasturage the most considerable part of their lands bestowed on the small remainder a rude and careless cultivation and then accused the scantiness and sterility of a country that refused to maintain the multitude of its inhabitants when the return of famine severely admonished them of the importance of the arts the national distress was sometimes alleviated by the emigration of a third perhaps or a fourth part of their youth the possession and the enjoyment of property are the pledges which bind a civilized people to an improved country but the germans who carried with them what they most valued their arms their cattle and their women cheerfully abandoned the vast silence of their woods for the unbounded hopes of plunder and conquest the innumerable swarms that issued or seemed to issue from the great storehouse of nations were multiplied by the fears of the vanquished and by the credulity of the succeeding ages and from facts thus exaggerated an opinion was gradually established and has been supported by writers of distinguished reputation that in the age of caesar and tacitus the inhabitants of the north were far more numerous than they are in our days a more serious inquiry into the causes of population seems to have convinced modern philosophers of the falsehood and indeed the impossibility of the supposition to the names of mariana and of machiavel we can oppose the equal names of robertson and hume a warlike nation like the germans without either cities letters arts or money found some compensation for this savage state in the enjoyment of liberty their poverty secured their freedom since our desires and our possessions are the strongest fetters of despotism among the suyones says tacitus riches are held in honor they are therefore subject to an absolute monarch who instead of entrusting his people with the free use of arms as is practised in the rest of germany commits them to the safe custody not of a citizen or even of a freedman but of a slave the neighbours of the suyons the cytones are sunk even below servitude they obey a woman in the mention of these exceptions the great historian sufficiently acknowledges the general theory of government we are only at a loss to conceive by what means riches and despotism could penetrate into a remote corner of the north and extinguish the generous flame that blazed with such fierceness on the frontier of the roman provinces or how the ancestors of those danes and norwegians so distinguished in latter ages by their unconquered spirit could thus tamely resign the great character of german liberty some tribes however on the coast of the baltic acknowledged the authority of kings though without relinquishing the rights of men but in the far greater part of germany the form of government was a democracy tempered indeed and controlled not so much by general and positive laws as by the occasional ascendant of birth or valour 
of eloquence or superstition. Civil governments in their first institution are voluntary associations for mutual defense. To obtain the desired end, it is absolutely necessary that each individual should conceive himself obliged to submit his private opinions and actions to the judgment of the greater number of his associates. The German tribes were contented with this rude but liberal outline of political society. As soon as a youth, born of free parents, had attained the age of manhood, he was introduced into the general council of his countrymen, solemnly invested with a shield and spear, and adopted as an equal and worthy member of the military commonwealth. The assembly of the warriors of the tribe was convened at stated seasons or on sudden emergencies. The trial of public offenses, the election of magistrates, and the great business of peace and war were determined by its independent voice. Sometimes, indeed, these important questions were previously considered and prepared in a more select council of the principal chieftains. The magistrates might deliberate and persuade, the people could only resolve and execute, and the resolutions of the Germans were for the most part hasty and violent. Barbarians accustomed to place their freedom in gratifying the present passion, and their courage in overlooking all future consequences, turned away with indignant contempt from the remonstrances of justice and policy, and it was the practice to signify by a hollow murmur their dislike of such timid counsels. But whenever a more popular orator proposed to vindicate the meanest citizen from either foreign or domestic injury, whenever he called upon his fellow countrymen to assert the national honor, or to pursue some enterprise full of danger and glory, a loud clashing of shields and spears expressed the eager applause of the assembly for the Germans always met in arms, and it was constantly to be dreaded, lest an irregular multitude, inflamed with faction and strong liquors, should use those arms to enforce, as well as to declare their furious resolves. We may recollect how often the diets of Poland have been polluted with blood, and the more numerous party has been compelled to yield to the more violent and seditious. A general of the tribe was elected on occasions of danger, and if the danger was pressing and extensive, several tribes concurred in the choice of the same general. The bravest warrior was named to lead his countrymen into the field, by his example rather than by his commands. But this power, however limited, was still invidious. It expired with the war, and in time of peace the German tribes acknowledged not any supreme chief. Princes were, however, appointed in the general assembly to administer justice, or rather to compose differences in their respective districts. In the choice of these magistrates, as much regard was shown to birth as to merit. To each was assigned by the public a guard, and a council of a hundred persons, and the first of the princes appears to have enjoyed a preeminence of rank and honor which sometimes tempted the Romans to compliment him with the regal title. The comparative view of the powers of the magistrates, in two remarkable instances, is alone sufficient to represent the whole system of German manners. The disposal of the landed property within their district was absolutely vested in their hands, and they distributed it every year according to a new division. At the same time they were not authorized to punish with death, to imprison, or even to strike a private citizen. A people thus jealous of their persons, and careless of their possessions, must have been totally destitute of industry and the arts, but animated with a high sense of honor and independence. End of chapter 9, 
Parts 1 and 2. Chapter 9, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 9, State of Germany until the Barbarians, Part 3. The Germans respected only those duties which they imposed on themselves. The most obscure soldier resisted with disdain the authority of the magistrates. The noblest youths blushed not to be numbered among the faithful companions of some renowned chief, to whom they devoted their arms and service. A noble emulation prevailed among the companions, to obtain the first place in the esteem of their chief, amongst the chiefs to acquire the greatest number of valiant companions. To be ever surrounded by a band of select youths was the pride and strength of the chiefs, their ornament in peace, their defence in war. The glory of such distinguished heroes diffused itself beyond the narrow limits of their own tribe. Presents and embassies solicited their friendship, and the fame of their arms often ensured victory to the party which they espoused. In the hour of danger it was shameful for the chief to be surpassed in valour by his companions shameful for the companions not to equal the valour of their chief. To survive his fall in battle was indelible infamy. To protect his person and to adorn his glory with the trophies of their own exploits were the most sacred of their duties. The chiefs combated for victory, the companions for the chief. The noblest warriors, whenever their native country was sunk into the laziness of peace, maintained their numerous bands in some distant scene of action, to exercise their restless spirit, and to acquire renown by voluntary dangers. Gifts worthy of soldiers, the warlike steed, the bloody and even victorious lance, were the rewards which the companions claimed from the liberality of their chief. The rude plenty of his hospitable board was the only pay that he could bestow, or they would accept. War, rapine, and the free-will offerings of his friends supplied the materials of this munificence. This institution, however it might accidentally weaken the several republics, invigorated the general character of the Germans, and even ripened amongst them all the virtues of which barbarians are susceptible, the faith and valour, the hospitality and the courtesy, so conspicuous long afterwards in the ages of chivalry. The honourable gifts bestowed by the chief on his brave companions have been supposed, by an ingenious writer, to contain the first rudiments of the fiefs distributed after the conquest of the Roman provinces by the barbarian lords among their vassals, with a similar duty of homage and military service. These conditions are, however, very repugnant to the maxims of the ancient Germans, who delighted in mutual presence, but without either imposing or accepting the weight of obligations. In the days of chivalry, or more properly of romance, all the men were brave, and all the women were chaste and notwithstanding the latter of these virtues is acquired and preserved with much more difficulty than the former, it is ascribed, almost without exception, to the wives of the ancient Germans. Polygamy was not in use, except among the princes, and among them only for the sake of multiplying their alliances. Divorces were prohibited by manners rather than by laws. Adulteries were punished as rare and inexpiable crimes, nor was seduction justified by example and fashion we may easily discover that Tacitus indulges an honest pleasure 
in the contrast of barbarian virtue with the dissolute conduct of the Roman ladies. Yet there are some striking circumstances that give an air of truth, or at least probability, to the conjugal faith and chastity of the Germans. Although the progress of civilization has undoubtedly contributed to assuage the fiercer passions of human nature, it seems to have been less favorable to the virtue of chastity, whose most dangerous enemy is the softness of the mind. The refinements of life corrupt while they polish the intercourse of the sexes. The gross appetite of love becomes most dangerous when it is elevated, or rather indeed disguised, by sentimental passion. The elegance of dress, of motion, and of manners gives a luster to beauty, and inflames the senses through the imagination. Luxurious entertainments, midnight dances, and licentious spectacles present at once temptation and opportunity to female frailty. From such dangers the unpolished wives of the barbarians were secured by poverty, solitude, and the painful cares of a domestic life. The German huts, open on every side to the eye of indiscretion or jealousy, were a better safeguard of conjugal fidelity than the walls, the bolts, and the eunuchs of a Persian harem. To this reason another may be added, of a more honorable nature. The Germans treated their women with esteem and confidence, consulted them on every occasion of importance, and fondly believed that in their breast resided a sanctity and wisdom more than human. Some of the interpreters of fate, such as Valida, in the Batvian War, governed in the name of the deity the fiercest nations of Germany. The rest of the sex, without being adored as goddesses, were respected as the free and equal companions of soldiers, associated even by the marriage ceremony to a life of toil, of danger, and of glory. In their great invasions the camps of the barbarians were filled with a multitude of women, who remained firm and undaunted amidst the sound of arms, the various forms of destruction, and the honorable wounds of their sons and husbands. Fainting armies of Germans have, more than once, been driven back upon the enemy by the generous despair of the women, who dreaded death much less than servitude. If the day was irrevocably lost, they well knew how to deliver themselves and their children, with their own hands, from an insulting victor. Heroines of such a caste may claim our admiration, but they were most assuredly neither lovely nor very susceptible of love. Whilst they affected to emulate the stern virtues of man, they must have resigned that attractive softness in which principally consists the charm and weakness of woman. Conscious pride taught the German females to suppress every tender emotion that stood in competition with honor, and the first honor of the sex has ever been that of chastity. The sentiments and conduct of these high-spirited matrons may at once be considered as a cause, as an effect, and as a proof of the general character of the nation. Female courage, however it may be raised by fanaticism, or confirmed by habit, can be only a faint and imperfect imitation of the manly valor that distinguishes the age or country in which it may be found. The religious system of the Germans, if the wild opinions of savages can deserve that name, was dictated by their wants, their fears, and their ignorance. They adored the great visible objects and agents of nature, the sun and the moon, the fire and the earth, together with those imaginary deities who were supposed to preside over the most important occupations of human life. They were persuaded that, by some ridiculous arts of divination, they could discover the will of the superior beings, 
and that human sacrifices were the most precious and acceptable offering to their altars. Some applause has been hastily bestowed on the sublime notion, entertained by that people, of the deity whom they neither confined within the walls of the temple nor represented by any human figure. But when we recollect that the Germans were unskilled in architecture and totally unacquainted with the art of sculpture, we shall readily assign the true reason of a scruple which arose not so much from a superiority of reason as from a want of ingenuity. The only temples in Germany were dark and ancient groves, consecrated by the reverence of succeeding generations. Their secret gloom, the imagined residence of an invisible power, by presenting no distinct object of fear or worship, impressed the mind with a still deeper sense of religious horror. And the priests, rude and illiterate as they were, had been taught by experience the use of every artifice that could preserve and fortify impressions so well suited to their own interest. The same ignorance, which renders barbarians incapable of conceiving or embracing the useful restraints of laws, exposes them naked and unarmed to the blind terrors of superstition. The German priests, improving this favorable temper of their countrymen, had assumed a jurisdiction even in temporal concerns, which the magistrate could not venture to exercise, and the haughty warrior patiently submitted to the lash of correction, when it was inflicted not by any human power, but by the immediate order of the god of war. The defects of civil policy were sometimes supplied by the interposition of ecclesiastical authority. The latter was constantly exerted to maintain silence and decency in the popular assemblies, and was sometimes extended to a more enlarged concern for the national welfare. A solemn procession was occasionally celebrated in the present countries of Mecklenburg and Pomerania. The unknown symbol of the earth, covered with a thick veil, was placed on a carriage drawn by cows, and in this manner the goddess, whose common residence was in the Isles of Rugen, visited several adjacent tribes of her worshippers. During her progress the sound of war was hushed, quarrels were suspended, arms laid aside, and the restless Germans had an opportunity of tasting the blessings of peace and harmony. The truce of God, so often and so ineffectually proclaimed by the clergy of the eleventh century, was an obvious imitation of this ancient custom. But the influence of religion was far more powerful to inflame than to moderate the fierce passions of the Germans. Interest and fanaticism often prompted its ministers to sanctify the most daring and the most unjust enterprises by the approbation of heaven and full assurances of success. The consecrated standards, long revered in the groves of superstition, were placed in the front of the battle, and the hostile army was devoted with dire execrations to the gods of war and of thunder. In the faith of soldiers, and such were the Germans, cowardice is the most unpardonable of sins. A brave man was the worthy favorite of their martial deities. The wretch who had lost his shield was alike banished from the religious and civil assemblies of his countrymen. Some tribes of the north seem to have embraced the doctrine of transmigration. Others imagined a gross paradise of immortal drunkenness. All agreed that a life spent in arms and a glorious death in battle were the best preparations for a happy futurity, either in this or in another world. The immortality so vainly promised by the priests was, in some degree, conferred by the bards. 
that singular order of men has most deservedly attracted the notice of all who have attempted to investigate the antiquities of the Celts, the Scandinavians, and the Germans. Their genius and character, as well as the reverence paid to that important office, have been sufficiently illustrated. But we cannot so easily express, or even conceive, the enthusiasm of arms and glory which they kindled in the breast of their audience. Among a polished people, a taste for poetry is rather an amusement of the fancy than a passion of the soul. And yet, when in calm retirement we peruse the combats described by Homer or Tasso, we are insensibly seduced by the fiction, and feel a momentary glow of martial ardor. But how faint, how cold is the sensation which a peaceful mind can receive from solitary study! It was in the hour of battle, or in the feast of victory, that the bards celebrated the glory of the heroes of ancient days, the ancestors of those warlike chieftains who listened with transport to their artless but animated strains. The view of arms and of danger heightened the effect of the military song, and the passions which it tended to excite, the desire of fame and the contempt of death, were the habitual sentiments of a German mind. Such was the situation, and such were the manners of the ancient Germans. Their climate, their want of learning, of arts and of laws, their notions of honor, of gallantry, and of religion, their sense of freedom, impatience of peace, and thirst of enterprise, all contributed to form a people of military heroes. And yet we find that during more than two hundred and fifty years that elapsed from the defeat of Varus to the reign of Decius, these formidable barbarians made few considerable attempts, and not any material impression, on the luxurious and enslaved provinces of the empire. Their progress was checked by their want of arms and discipline, and their fury was diverted by the intestine divisions of ancient Germany. It has been observed, with ingenuity and not without truth, that the command of iron soon gives a nation the command of gold. But the rude tribes of Germany, alike destitute of both those valuable metals, were reduced slowly to acquire by their unassisted strength the possession of the one as well as the other. The face of a German army displayed their poverty of iron. Swords, and the longer kind of lances, they could seldom use. Their frame, as they called them in their own language, were long spears headed with a sharp but narrow iron point, and which, as occasion required, they either darted from a distance or pushed in close onset. With this spear, and with a shield, their cavalry was contented. A multitude of darts, scattered with incredible force, were an additional resource of the infantry. Their military dress, when they wore any, was nothing more than a loose mantle. A variety of colors was the only ornament of their wooden or austere shields. Few of the chiefs were distinguished by cuirasses, scarcely any by helmets. Though the horses of Germany were neither beautiful, swift, nor practiced in the skillful evolutions of the Roman menege, Several of the nations obtained renown by their cavalry, but, in general, the principal strength of the Germans consisted in their infantry, which was drawn up in several deep columns, according to the distinction of the tribes and families. Impatient of fatigue and delay, these half-armed warriors rushed to battle with dissonant shouts and disordered ranks, and sometimes, by the effort of native valor, prevailed over the constrained and more artificial bravery of the Roman mercenaries but as the barbarians poured forth their whole souls on the first onset, they knew not how to rally or to retire. 
a repulse was a sure defeat, and a defeat was most commonly total destruction. When we recollect the complete armor of the Roman soldiers, their discipline, exercises, evolutions, fortified camps, and military engines, it appears a just matter of surprise how the naked and unassisted valor of the barbarians could dare to encounter in the field the strength of the legions and the various troops of the auxiliaries which seconded their operations. The contest was too unequal, till the introduction of luxury had enervated the vigor and a spirit of disobedience and sedition had relaxed the discipline of the Roman armies. The introduction of barbarian auxiliaries into those armies was a measure attended with very obvious dangers, as it might gradually instruct the Germans in the arts of war and of policy. Although they were admitted in small numbers and with the strictest precaution, the example of Civilis was proper to convince the Romans that the danger was not imaginary, and that their precautions were not always sufficient. During the civil wars that followed the death of Nero, that artful and intrepid Batavian, whom his enemies condescended to compare with Hannibal and Sertorius, formed a great design of freedom and ambition. Eight Batavian cohorts, renowned in the wars of Britain and Italy, repaired to his standard. He introduced an army of Germans into Gaul, prevailed on the powerful cities of Treves and Langres to embrace his cause, defeated the legions, destroyed their fortified camps, and employed against the Romans the military knowledge which he had acquired in their service. When at length, after an obstinate struggle, he yielded to the power of the empire, Civilis secured himself and his country by an honorable treaty. The Batavians still continued to occupy the islands of the Rhine, the allies, not the servants, of the Roman monarchy. The strength of ancient Germany appears formidable when we consider the effects that might have been produced by its united effort. The wide extent of country might very possibly contain a million of warriors, as all who were of age to bear arms were of a temper to use them. But this fierce multitude, incapable of concerting or executing any plan of national greatness, was agitated by various and often hostile intentions. Germany was divided into more than forty independent states, and even in each state the union of the several tribes was extremely loose and precarious. The barbarians were easily provoked. They knew not how to forgive an injury, much less an insult. Their resentments were bloody and implacable. The casual disputes that so frequently happened in their tumultuous parties of hunting or drinking were sufficient to inflame the minds of whole nations. The private feuds of any considerable chieftains diffused itself among their followers and allies. To chastise the insolent, or to plunder the defenseless, were alike causes of war. The most formidable states of Germany affected to encompass their territories with a wide frontier of solitude and devastation. The awful distance preserved by their neighbors attested the terror of their arms, and in some measure defended them from the danger of unexpected incursions. The Bructeri, it is Tacitus who now speaks, were totally exterminated by the neighboring tribes, provoked by their insolence, allured by the hopes of spoil, and perhaps inspired by the tutelar deities of the empire. Above sixty thousand barbarians were destroyed, not by the Roman arms, but in our sight and for our entertainment. May the nations, enemies of Rome, ever preserve this enmity to each other. We have now attained the utmost verge of prosperity, and have nothing left to demand of fortune, 
except the discord of the barbarians. These sentiments, less worthy of the humanity than of the patriotism of Tacitus, express the invariable maxims of the policy of his countrymen. They deemed it a much safer expedient to divide than to combat the barbarians, from whose defeat they could derive neither honour nor advantage. The money and negotiations of Rome insinuated themselves into the heart of Germany, and every art of seduction was used with dignity to conciliate those nations whom their proximity to the Rhine or Danube might render the most useful friends as well as the most troublesome enemies. Chiefs of renown and power were flattered by the most trifling presents, which they received either as marks of distinction or as the instruments of luxury. In civil dissensions the weaker faction endeavoured to strengthen its interest by entering into secret connections with the governors of the frontier provinces. Every quarrel among the Germans was fomented by the intrigues of Rome, and every plan of union and public good was defeated by the stronger bias of private jealousy and interest. The general conspiracy which terrified the Romans under the reign of Marcus Antonius comprehended almost all the nations of Germany, and even Sarmartia from the mouth of the Rhine to that of the Danube. It is impossible for us to determine whether this hasty confederation was formed by necessity, by reason, or by passion, but we may rest assured that the barbarians were neither allured by the indolence nor provoked by the ambition of the Roman monarch. This dangerous invasion required all the firmness and vigilance of Marcus. He fixed generals of ability in the several stations of attack, and assumed in person the conduct of the most important province on the upper Danube. After a long and doubtful conflict, the spirit of the barbarians was subdued. The Quadi and the Marcomanni, who had taken the lead in the war, were the most severely punished in its catastrophe. They were commanded to retire five miles from their own banks of the Danube, and to deliver up the flower of the youth, who were immediately sent into Britain, a remote island, where they might be secure as hostages, and useful as soldiers. On the frequent rebellions of the Quadi and the Marcomanni, the irritated emperor resolved to reduce their country into the form of a province. His designs were disappointed by death. This formidable league, however, the only one that appears in the two first centuries of the imperial history, was entirely dissipated, without leaving any traces behind in Germany. In the course of this introductory chapter, we have confined ourselves to the general outlines of the manners of Germany, without attempting to describe or to distinguish the various tribes which filled that great country in the time of Caesar, of Tacitus, or of Ptolemy. As the ancient or as new tribes successively present themselves in the series of this history, we shall concisely mention their origin, their situation, and their particular character. Modern nations are fixed and permanent societies, connected among themselves by laws and government, bound to their native soil by arts and agriculture. The German tribes were voluntary and fluctuating associations of soldiers, almost of savages. The same territory often changed its inhabitants in the tide of conquest and emigration. The same communities, uniting in a plan of defense or invasion, bestowed a new title on their new confederacy. The dissolution of an ancient confederacy restored to the independent tribes their peculiar but long-forgotten appellation. A victorious state often communicated its own name to a vanquished people. Sometimes crowds of volunteers flocked from all parts 
to the standard of a favorite leader. His camp became their country, and some circumstance of the enterprise soon gave a common denomination to the mixed multitude. The distinctions of the ferocious invaders were perpetually varied by themselves, and confounded by the astonished subjects of the Roman Empire. Wars, and the administration of public affairs, are the principal subjects of history. But the number of persons interested in these busy scenes is very different, according to the different condition of mankind. In great monarchies, millions of obedient subjects pursue their useful occupations in peace and obscurity. The attention of the writer, as well as of the reader, is solely confined to a court, a capital, a regular army, and the districts which happen to be the occasional scene of military operations. But a state of freedom and barbarism, the season of civil commotions, or the situation of petty republics, raises almost every member of the community into action, and consequently into notice. The irregular divisions and the restless motions of the people of Germany dazzle our imagination, and seem to multiply their numbers. The profuse enumeration of kings, of warriors, of armies and nations, inclines us to forget that the same subjects are continually repeated under a variety of appellations, and that the most splendid appellations have been frequently lavished on the most inconsiderable objects. End of chapter 9, part 3「Chapter 10, Part 1 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Emperors Decius, Gallus, Aemilianus, Valerian, and Gallienus. The General Inruption of the Barbarians. Thirty Tyrants. From the great secular games celebrated by Philip, to the death of the Emperor Gallienus, there elapsed twenty years of shame and misfortune. During that calamitous period, every instant of time was marked, every province of the Roman world was afflicted, by barbarous invaders and military tyrants, and the ruined empire seemed to approach the last and fatal moment of its dissolution. The confusion of the times, and the scarcity of authentic memorials, oppose equal difficulty to the historian, who attempts to preserve a clear and unbroken thread of narration. Surrounded with imperfect fragments, always concise, often obscure, and sometimes contradictory, he is reduced to collect, to compare, and to conjecture, and though he ought never to place his conjectures in the rank of facts, yet to the knowledge of human nature, and of the sure operation of its fierce, and unrestrained passions, might, on some occasions, supply the want of historical materials. There is not, for instance, any difficulty in conceiving that the successive murders of so many emperors had loosened all the ties of allegiance between the prince and the people. That all the generals of Philip were disposed to imitate the example of their master, and that the caprice of armies, long since habituated to frequent and violent revolutions, might every day raise to the throne the most obscure of their fellow-soldiers. History can only add that the rebellion against the Emperor Philip broke out in the summer of the year 249, among the legions of Mercia, and that a subaltern officer named Marinus 
was the object of their sedacious choice. Philip was alarmed. He dreaded, lest the treason of the Mercian army should prove the first spark of a general conflagration. Distracted with the consciousness of his guilt and of his danger, he communicated the intelligence to the Senate. A gloomy silence prevailed, the effect of fear and perhaps of disaffection, till at length Decius, one of the assembly, assuming a spirit worthy of his noble extraction, ventured to discover more intrepidity than the emperor seemed to possess. He treated the whole business with contempt, as a hasty and inconsiderate tumult, and Philip's rival as a phantom of royalty, who, in a very few days, would be destroyed by the same inconsistency that had created him. The speedy completion of the prophecy inspired Philip with a just esteem for so able a counsellor, and Decius appeared to him the only person capable of restoring peace and discipline to an army whose tumultuous spirit did not immediately subside after the murder of Marinus. Decius, who long resisted his own nomination, seems to have insinuated the danger of presenting a leader of merit to the angry and apprehensive minds of the soldiers, and his prediction was again confirmed by the event. The legions of Mercia forced their judge to become their accomplice. They left him only the alternative of death or the purple. His subsequent conduct, after that decisive measure, was unavoidable. He conducted, or followed, his army to the confines of Italy, whither Philip, collecting all his force to repel the formidable competitor, whom he had raised up, advanced to meet him. The imperial troops were superior in number, but the rebels formed an army of veterans, commanded by an able and experienced leader. Philip was either killed in the battle, or put to death a few days after, at Verona. His son, an associate in the empire, was massacred at Rome by the Praetorian guards. And the victorious Decius, with more favourable circumstances than the ambition of that age can usually plead, was universally acknowledged by the senate and provinces. It is reported that immediately after his reluctant acceptance of the title of Augustus, he had assured Philip, by a private message, of his innocence and loyalty, solemnly protesting that on his arrival on Italy he would resign the imperial ornaments and return to the condition of an obedient subject. His professions might be sincere, but in the situation where fortune had placed him, it was scarcely possible that he could either forgive or be forgiven. The Emperor Decius had employed a few months in the works of peace and the administration of justice, when he was summoned to the banks of the Danube by the invasion of the Goths. This is the first considerable occasion in which history mentions that great people, who afterwards broke the Roman power, sacked the capital, and reigned in Gaul, Spain, and Italy. So memorable was the part which they acted in the subversion of the Western Empire, that the name of Goths is frequently but improperly used as a general appellation of rude and warlike barbarism. In the beginning of the sixth century, and after the conquest of Italy, the Goths, in possession of present greatness, very naturally indulged themselves in the prospect of past and of future glory. They wished to preserve the memory of their ancestors, and to transmit to posterity their own achievements. The principal minister of the court of Ravenna, the learned Cassiodorus, gratified the inclination of the conquerors in a Gothic history, which consisted of twelve books, now reduced to the imperfect abridgment of Jornandes.
these writers passed with the most artful consciousness over the misfortunes of the nation, celebrated its successful valour, and adorned the triumph with many Asiatic trophies, that more properly belonged to the people of Scythia. On the faith of ancient songs, the uncertain, but the only memorials of barbarians, they deduced the first origin of the Goths from the vast island or peninsula of Scandinavia. That extreme country of the north was not unknown to the conquerors of Italy. The ties of ancient consanguinity had been strengthened by recent offices of friendship, and a Scandinavian king had cheerfully abdicated his savage greatness, that he might pass the remainder of his days in the peaceful and polished court of Ravenna. Many vestiges, which cannot be ascribed to the arts of popular vanity, attest the ancient residence of the Goths in the countries beyond the Rhine. From the time of the geographer Ptolemy, the southern part of Sweden seems to have continued in the possession of the less enterprising remnant of the nation, and a large territory is even at present divided into east and west Gothland. During the Middle Ages, from the ninth to the twelfth century, whilst Christianity was advancing with a slow progress into the north, the Goths and the Swedes composed two distinct and sometimes hostile members of the same monarchy. The latter of these two names has prevailed without extinguishing the former. The Swedes, who might well be satisfied with their own fame in arms, have, in every age, claimed the kindred glory of the Goths. In a moment of discontent against the court of Rome, Charles the Twelfth insinuated that his victorious troops were not degenerated from their brave ancestors, who had already subdued to the mistress of the world. Till the end of the eleventh century, a celebrated temple subsisted at Upassel, the most considerable town of the Swedes and Goths. It was enriched with the gold which the Scandinavians had acquired in their piratical adventurers, and sanctified by the uncouth representations of the three principal deities, the god of war, the goddess of generation, and the god of thunder. In the general festival that was solemnized every ninth year, nine animals of every species, without excepting the human, were sacrificed, and their bleeding bodies suspended in the sacred grove adjacent to the temple. The only traces that now subsist of this barbaric superstition are contained in the Edda, a system of mythology compiled in Iceland about the thirteenth century, and studied by the learned of Denmark and Sweden, as most valuable remains of their ancient traditions. Notwithstanding the mysterious obscurity of the Edda, we can easily distinguish two persons confounded under the name of Odin, the god of war and the great legislator of Scandinavia. The latter, the great Mohammed of the north, instituted a religion adapted to the climate and to the people. Numerous tribes on either side of the Baltic were subdued by the invincible valour of Odin, by his persuasive eloquence, and by the fame which he acquired of a most skilful magician. The faith that he had propagated, during a long and prosperous life, he confirmed by a voluntary death. Apprehensive of the ignominious approach of disease and infirmity, he resolved to expire as become a warrior. In a solemn assembly of the Swedes and Goths, he wounded himself in nine mortal places, hastening away, as he asserted with his dying voice, to prepare the feast of heroes in the palace of the god of war. The native and proper habitation of Odin is distinguished by the appellation of Asgard. The happy resemblance of that name with Asberg, or Azov, 
words of a similar signification, have given rise to an historical system of so pleasing a contexture, that we could almost wish to persuade ourselves of its truth. It is supposed that Odin was the chief of a tribe of barbarians, who dwelt on the banks of the Lake Meotis, till the fall of Mithridates, and the arms of Pompey menaced the north with servitude. That Odin, yielding with indignant fury to a power which he was unable to resist, conducted his tribe from the frontiers of the Asiatic Sarmatia into Sweden, with the great design of forming, in that inaccessible retreat of freedom, a religion and a people, which, in some remote age, might be subservient to his immortal revenge. When his invincible Goths, armed with martial fanaticism, should issue in numerous swarms from the neighbourhood of the polar circle, to chastise the oppressors of mankind. If so many successive generations of Goths were capable of preserving a faint tradition of their Scandinavian origin, we must not expect, from such unlettered barbarians, any distinct account of the time and circumstances of their immigration. To cross the Baltic was an easy and natural attempt. The inhabitants of Sweden were masters of a sufficient number of large vessels, with oars, and the distance is little more than one hundred miles from Kalskren to the nearest ports of Pomerania and Prussia. Here, at length, we land on firm and historic ground, at least as early as the Christian era, and as late as the age of the Antonines. The Goths were established towards the mouth of the Vistula, and in that fertile province where the commercial cities of Thorn, Elbing, Konisberg, and Danzig were long afterwards founded. Westward of the Goths, the numerous tribes of the Vandals were spread along the banks of the Alder, and to the sea coast of Pomerania and Mecklenburg. A striking resemblance of manners, complexion, religion, and language seemed to indicate that the Vandals and the Goths were originally one great people. The latter appear to have been subdivided into Ostrogoths, Visgoths, and Gepidia. The distinction among the Vandals was more strongly marked by the independent names of Herulii, Burgundians, Lombards, and a variety of other petty states, many of which, in a future age, expanded themselves into powerful monarchies. In the age of the Antonines, the Goths were still seated in Prussia. About the reign of Alexander Severus, the Roman province of Decia had already experienced their proximity by frequent and destructive inroads. In this interval, therefore, of about seventy years, we must place the second migration of the Goths from the Baltic to the Euxine. But the cause that produced it lies concealed among the various motives which actuate the conduct of unsettled barbarians. Either a pestilence or a famine, a victory or a defeat, an oracle of the gods or the eloquence of a daring leader, were sufficient to impel the Gothic arms on the milder climates of the south. Besides the influence of martial religion, the numbers and spirit of the Goths were equal to the most dangerous adventures. The use of round bucklers and short swords rendered them formidable in a close engagement. The manly obedience which they yielded to hereditary kings gave uncommon union and stability to their councils, and the renowned Amala, the hero of that age, and the tenth ancestor of Theodoric, king of Italy, enforced, by the ascendance of personal merit, the prerogative of his birth, which he derived from the ancestors or demigods of the Gothic nation. 
the fame of a great enterprise excited the bravest warriors from all the vandalic states of germany many of whom are seen a few years afterwards combating under the common standard of the goths the first motions of the emigrants carried them to the banks of the prepesh a river universally conceived by the ancients to be the southern branch of the Borysthenes. the windings of that great stream through the plains of poland and russia gave a direction to their line of march and a constant supply of fresh water and pasturage to their numerous herds of cattle they followed the unknown course of the river confident in their valour and careless of whatever power might oppose their progress the bastani and the venedi were the first who presented themselves and the flower of their youth either from choice or compulsion increased to the gothic army the bastani dwelt on the northern side of the carpathian mountains the immense tract of land that separated the Bastani from the savages of Finland was possessed, or rather wasted, by the Venedi. We have some reason to believe that the first of these nations, which distinguished itself in the Macedonian War, and was afterwards divided into the formidable tribes of the Pusini, the Borani, and the Carpi, etc., derived its origin from the Germans. With better authority a Sarmatian extraction may be assigned to the Venedi, who rendered themselves so famous in the Middle Ages. But the confusion of blood and manners on that doubtful frontier often perplexed the most accurate observers. As the Goths advanced near the Euxine Sea, they encountered a purer race of Sarmatians, the Jazagis, the Alani, and the Roxolani, and they were probably the first Germans who saw the mouths of the Borysthenes and of the Tanas. If we inquire into the characteristic marks of the people of Germany and of Sarmatia, we shall discover that these two great portions of humankind were principally distinguished by fixed huts or movable tents, by a close dress or flowing garments, by the marriage of one or of several wives, by a military force consisting for the most part either of infantry or cavalry, and above all by the use of the Teutonic or of the Sclavonian language, the last of which has been diffused by conquest from the confines of Italy to the neighbourhood of Japan. End of chapter 10, part 1 Chapter 10, part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter 10 Emperors Decius, Gallus, Aemilianus, Valerian, and Gallienus. Part 2 The Goths were now in possession of the Ukraine, a country of considerable extent and uncommon fertility, intersected with navigable rivers, which from either side discharged themselves into the Borysthenes and it dispersed with large and leafy forests of oak. The plenty of game and fish, the innumerable beehives deposited in the hollow of old trees, and in the cavities of rock, and forming, even in that rude age, a valuable branch of commerce, the size of the cattle, the temperature of the air, the aptness of the soil for every species of grain, and the luxuriancy of the vegetation, all displayed the liberality of nature, and tempted the industry of man. But the Goths withstood all these temptations, and still adhered to a life of idleness, 
of poverty and a raping. The Scythian hordes, which, towards the east, bordered on the new settlements of the Goths, presented nothing to their arms, except the doubtful chance of an unprofitable victory. But the prospect of the Roman territories was far more alluring, and the fields of Dacia were covered with rich harvests, sown by the hands of an industrious, and exposed to be gathered by those of a warlike people. It is probable that the conquests of Trajan, maintained by his successors, less for any real advantage than for idle dignity, had contributed to weaken the empire on that side. The new and unsettled province of Dacia was neither strong enough to resist, nor rich enough to satiate, the rapaciousness of the barbarians. As long as the remote banks of the Niester were considered as the boundary of the Roman power, the fortifications of the lower Danube were more carelessly guarded, and the inhabitants of Mercia lived in supine security, fondly conceiving themselves at an inaccessible distance from any barbarian invaders. The eruptions of the Goths, under the reign of Philip, fatally convinced them of their mistake. The king, or leader of that fierce nation, traversed with contempt the province of Dacia, and passed both the Niester and the Danube, without encountering any opposition capable of retarding his progress. The relaxed discipline of the Roman troops betrayed the most important posts where they were stationed, and the fear of deserved punishment induced great numbers of them to enlist under the Gothic standard. The various multitude of barbarians appeared at length under the walls of the Marcianopolis, a city built by Trajan in honour of his sister, and at that time the capital of the second Mercia. The inhabitants consented to ransom their lives and property by the payment of a large sum of money, and the invaders retreated back into their deserts, animated rather than satisfied, with the first success of their arms against an opulent but feeble country. Intelligence was soon transmitted to the Emperor Decius that Canavar, king of the Goths, had passed the Danube a second time, with more considerable forces, that his numerous detachments scattered devastation over the province of Mercia, whilst the main body of the army, consisting of seventy thousand Germans and Sarmatians, a force equal to the most daring achievements, required the presence of the Roman monarch, and the exertion of military power. Decius found the Goths engaged before Nicopolis, one of the many monuments of Trajan's victories. On his approach they raised a siege, but with a design only of marching away to a conquest of greater importance, the siege of Philippopolis, a city of Thrace founded by the father of Alexander near the foot of Mount Hamus. Decius followed them through a difficult country, and by forced marches. But when he imagined himself at a considerable distance from the rear of the Goths, Canavar turned with rapid fury on his pursuers. The camp of the Romans was surprised and pillaged, and for the first time their emperor fled in disorder before a troop of half-armed barbarians. After a long resistance, Philippopolis, destitute of succour, was taken by storm. A hundred thousand persons are reported to have been massacred in the sack of the great city. Many prisoners of consequence became a valuable accession to the spoil, and Prisicus, a brother of the late Emperor Philip, blushed not to assume the purple, under the protection of the barbarous enemies of Rome. 
The time, however, consumed in that tedious siege, enabled Decius to revive the courage, restore the discipline, and recruit the numbers of his troops. He intercepted several parties of Capari, and other Germans, who were hastening to share the victory of their countrymen, entrusted the passes of the mountains to officers of approved valour and fidelity, repaired and strengthened the fortifications of the Danube, and exerted his utmost vigilance to oppose either the progress or the retreat of the Goths. Encouraged by the return of fortune, he anxiously waited for an opportunity to retrieve, by a great and decisive blow, his own glory and that of the Roman arms. At the same time when Decius was struggling with the violence of the tempest, his mind, calm and deliberate amidst the tumult of war, investigated the more general causes, that, since the age of the Antonines, had so impetuously urged the decline of the Roman greatness. He soon discovered that it was impossible to replace that greatness on a permanent basis, without restoring public virtue, ancient principles and manners, and the oppressed majesty of the law. To execute this noble but arduous design, he first resolved to revive the obsolete office of censor, an office which, as long as it had subsisted in its pristine integrity, had so much contributed to the perpetuity of the state, till it was usurped and gradually neglected by the Caesars. Conscious that the favour of the sovereign may confer power, but that the esteem of the people can alone bestow authority, he submitted the choice of the censor to the unbiased voice of the senate. By their unanimous vote, or rather acclamations, Valerian, who was afterwards emperor, and who then served with the distinction in the army of Decius, was declared the most worthy of that exalted honour. As soon as the decree of the senate was transmitted to the emperor, he assembled a great council in his camp, and before the investiture of the censor-elect, he appraised him of the difficulty and importance of his great office. "'Happy Valerian,' said the prince to his distinguished subject, "'happy in the general approbation of the Senate and of the Roman Republic, accept the censorship of mankind, and judge of our manners. You will select those who deserve to continue members of the Senate. You will restore the equestrian order to its ancient splendour. You will improve the revenue, yet moderate the public burdens.' You will distinguish into regular classes the various and infinite multitudes of citizens, and accurately view the military strength, the wealth, the virtue, and the resources of Rome. Your decisions shall obtain the force of laws. The army, the palace, the ministers of justice, and the great officers of the empire are all subject to your tribunal. None are exempt, excepting only the ordinary councils, the prefect of the city, the king of the sacrifices, and, as long as she preserves her chastity inviolate, the eldest of the vestal virgins. Even these few, who may not dread the severity, will anxiously solicit the esteem of the Roman censor. A magistrate, invested with such extensive powers, would have appeared not so much the minister as the colleague of his sovereign. Valerian justly dreaded an elevation so full of envy and of suspicion. He modestly argued the alarming greatness of the trust, his own insufficiency, and the incurable corruption of the times. He artfully insinuated that the office of censure was inseparable from the imperial dignity, and that the feeble hands of a subject were unequal to the support of such an immense weight of cares and of power. 
the approaching event of war soon put an end to the prosecution of a project so specious but so impracticable and whilst it preserved valerian from the danger saved the emperor decius from the disappointment which would most probably have attended it a censor may maintain he can never restore the morals of a state it is impossible for such a magistrate to exert his authority with benefit or even with effect unless he is supported by a quick sense of honour and virtue in the minds of the people by a decent reverence for the public opinion and by a train of useful prejudices combating on the side of national manners in a period when these principles are annihilated the censorial jurisdiction must either sink into empty pageantry or be converted into a partial instrument of vexatious oppression it was easier to vanquish the goths than to eradicate the public vices yet even in the first of these enterprises decius lost his army and his life the goths were now on every side surrounded and pursued by the roman arms the flower of their troops had perished in the long siege of philippopolis and the exhausted country could no longer afford subsistence for the remaining multitude of licentious barbarians reduced to this extremity the goths would gladly have purchased by the surrender of all their booty and prisoners the permission of an undisturbed retreat but to the emperor confident of victory and resolving by the chastisement of these invaders to strike a solitary terror into the nations of the north refused to listen to any terms of accommodation the high-spirited barbarians preferred to death to slavery an obscure town of Macia, called forum terraboni was the scene of the battle the gothic army was drawn up in three lines and either from choice or accident the front of the third line was covered by a morass in the beginning of the action the son of decius a youth of the fairest hopes and already associated to the honours of the purple was slain by an arrow in the sight of his afflicted father who summoning all his fortitude admonished the dismayed troops that the loss of a single soldier was of little importance to the republic the conflict was terrible it was the combat of despair against grief and rage the first line of the goths at length gave way in disorder the second advancing to sustain it shared its fate and the third only remained entire prepared to dispute the passage of the morass which was imprudently attempted by the presumption of the enemy here the fortune of the day turned and all things became adverse to the romans the place deep with ooze sinking under those who stood slippery to such an advance their armour heavy the waters deep nor could they wield in that uneasy situation their weighty javelins the barbarians on the contrary were inured to encounter in the bogs their persons tall their spears long such as could wound at a distance in this morass the roman army after an ineffectual struggle was irrevocably lost nor could the body of the emperor ever be found such was the fate of decius in the fiftieth year of his age an accomplished prince active in war and affable in peace who together with his son had deserved to be compared both in life and death with the brightest examples of ancient virtue this fatal blow humbled for a very little time the insolence of the legions they appeared to have patiently expected and submissively obeyed the decree of the senate which regulated the succession to the throne 
From a just regard for the memory of Decius, the imperial title was conferred on Hostilianus, his only surviving son. But an equal rank, with more effectual power, was granted to Gallus, whose experience and ability seemed equal to the great trust of guardian to the young prince and the distressed empire. The first care of the new emperor was to deliver the Illyrian provinces from the intolerable weight of the victorious Goths. He consented to leave in their hands the rich fruits of their invasion, an immense booty. And what was still more disgraceful, a great number of prisoners of the highest merit and quality. He plentifully supplied their camp with every conveniency that could assuage their angry spirits, or facilitate their so much wished for departure. And he even promised to pay them annually a large sum of gold, on condition they should never afterwards infest the Roman territories by their incursions. In the age of the Scipius, the most opulent kings of the earth, who courted the protection of the virtuous commonwealth, were gratified with such trifling presents as could only derive a value from the hand that bestowed them. An ivory chair, a coarse garment of purple, an inconsiderable piece of plate, or a quantity of copper coin. After the wealth of nations had centred in Rome, the emperors displayed their greatness, and even their policy, by the regular exercise of a steady and moderate liberality towards the allies of the state. They relieved the poverty of the barbarians, honoured their merit, and recompensed their fidelity. These voluntary marks of bounty were understood to flow, not from the fears, but merely from the generosity or the gratitude of the Romans. And whilst presents and subsidies were liberally distributed among friends and suppliants, they were sternly refused to such as claimed them as a debt. But this stipulation of an annual payment to a victorious enemy appeared without disguise in the light of an ignominious tribute. The minds of the Romans were not yet accustomed to accept such unequal laws from a tribe of barbarians, and the prince, who by a necessary concession had probably saved his country, became the object of general contempt and aversion. The death of Philistianus, though it happened in the midst of a raging pestilence, was interpreted as the personal crime of Gallus, and even the defeat of the later emperor was ascribed by the voice of suspicion to the perfidious counsels of his hated successor. The tranquillity which the empire enjoyed during the first year of his administration served rather to inflame than to appease the public discontent, and as soon as the apprehensions of war were removed, the infamy of the peace was more deeply and more sensibly felt. But the Romans were irritated to a still higher degree, when they discovered that they had not even secured their repose, though at the expense of their honour. The dangerous secret of the wealth and weakness of the empire had been revealed to the world. New swarms of barbarians, encouraged by the success, and not conceiving themselves bound by the obligations of their brethren, spread devastation through the Illyrian provinces, and terror as far as the gates of Rome. The defence of the monarchy, which seemed abandoned by the pusillanimous emperor, was assumed by Aemilianus, governor of Pannonia and Maesia, who rallied the scattered forces, and revived the fainting spirits of the troops. The barbarians were unexpectedly attacked, routed, chased, and pursued beyond the Danube. The victorious leader distributed, as a donative, the money collected for the tribute, and the acclamations of the soldiers proclaimed him emperor on the field of battle. 
Gallus, who, careless of the general welfare, indulged himself in the pleasures of Italy, was almost in the same instant informed of the success of the revolt, and of the rapid approach of his aspiring lieutenant. He advanced to meet him as far as the plains of Spoleto. When the armies came in sight of each other, the soldiers of Gallus compared the ignominious conduct of their sovereign with the glory of his rival. They admired the valour of Aemilianus. They were attracted by his liberality, for he offered a considerable increase of pay to all deserters. The murder of Gallus, and of his son Volusianus, put an end to the civil war, and the senate gave a legal sanction to the rights of conquest. The letters of Aemilianus to that assembly displayed a mixture of moderation and vanity. He assured them that he should resign to their wisdom the civil administration, and contenting himself with the quality of their general, would in a short time assert the glory of Rome, and deliver the empire from all the barbarians, both of the north and of the east. His pride was flattered by the applause of the senate, and medals are still exact, representing him with the name and attributes of Hercules the victor, and Mars the avenger. If the new monarch possessed the abilities, he wanted the time necessary to fulfil these splendid promises. Less than four months intervened between his victory and his fall. He had vanquished Gallus. He sank under the weight of a competitor more formidable than Gallus. That unfortunate prince had sent Valerian, already distinguished by the honourable title of censor, to bring the legions of Gaul and Germany to his aid. Valerian executed that commission with zeal and fidelity, and as he arrived too late to save his sovereign, he resolved to avenge him. The troops of Aemilianus, who still lay encamped in the plains of Spoleto, were awed by the sanctity of his character, but much more by the superior strength of his army. And as they were now become as incapable of personal attachment as they had always been of constitutional principle, they readily embrued their hands in the blood of a prince who so lately had been the object of their partial choice. The guilt was theirs, but the advantage of it was Valerian's, who obtained the possession of the throne by the means indeed of a civil war, but with a degree of innocence singular in that age of revolutions, since he owed neither gratitude nor allegiance to his predecessor whom he dethroned. Valerian was about sixty years of age when he was invested with the purple, not by the caprice of the populace, or the clamours of the army, but by the unanimous voice of the Roman world. In his gradual ascent through the honours of the state, he had deserved the favour of virtuous princes, and had declared himself the enemy of tyrants. His noble birth, his mild but unblemished manners, his learning, prudence, and experience, were revered by the senate and people, and if mankind— according to the observation of an ancient writer, had been left at liberty to choose a master, their choice would most assuredly have fallen on Valerian. Perhaps the merit of this emperor was inadequate to his reputation. Perhaps his abilities, or at least his spirit, were affected by the languor and coldness of old age. The consciousness of his decline engaged him to share the throne with a younger and more active associate. The emergency of the times demanded a general no less than a prince, and the experience of the Roman censure might have directed him where to bestow the imperial purple as the reward of military merit. But instead of making a judicious choice, 
which would have confirmed his reign and endeared his memory, Valerian, consulting only the dictates of affection or vanity, immediately invested with the supreme honours his son, Gallienus, a youth whose effeminate vices had been hitherto concealed by the obscurity of a private station. The joint government of the father and the son subsisted about seven, and the sole administration of Galilean continued about eight years. But the whole period was one uninterrupted series of confusion and calamity. As the Roman Empire was at the same time, on every side, attacked by the blind fury of foreign invaders, and the wild ambition of domestic usurpers, we shall consult order and perspicuity by pursuing not so much the doubtful arrangement of dates as the more natural distribution of subjects. The most dangerous enemies of Rome, during the reigns of Valerian and Gallienus, were, one, the Franks, two, the Aelmeni, three, the Goths, and four, the Persians. Under these general appellations, we may comprehend the adventures of less considerable tribes, whose obscure and uncouth names would only serve to repress the memory and perplex the attention of the reader. End of chapter 10, part 2